You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. On Saturday, six members of the gang known as Street Thunder were ambushed by the police. On Sunday, the warlords of Street Thunder swore a blood oath to avenge their dead. For the gang called Street Thunder, it is a day of vengeance. It's war in the streets. Oh, Jesus, come on. Come on, I'll give you my money. Just don't hurt me, please. Please. It's terror in the night. It's the most shattering assault on a police station in history. Assault on Precinct 13. This is the siege. It's a goddamn siege. You want to stay here and hold until somebody comes, okay? We're in the middle of a city, inside a police station. They're not afraid to die. Any of them. They want to rip us apart, no matter what it costs. It means to the death. Precinct 13. Cut off. Isolated in the middle of a city. As a human wave of street killers turns the night into a nightmare. going on down here. We can't find the damn thing. A white-hot night of hate. Assault on Precinct 13. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Aaron Peterson. Hey, thanks for having me back. Also back in the booth is Mr. Well, Father Malone. <laughs> yeah, Father Malone, I'm actually calling from uh, Precinct 9 and Division 13. I hope that's not going to be a conflict. We are kicking off a pair of episodes on the works of John Carpenter with the discussion of Assault on Precinct 13. It is the story of Ethan Bishop, played by Austin Stoker, a policeman who's given the shit assignment of taking care of a police station that has been decommissioned. It's quite a snooze until a bus carrying dangerous prisoners, including the notorious Napoleon Wilson, shows up along with a father who's killed a gang member. This sets off the titular assault. We will be spoiling the film as we go along, so if you haven't seen Assault on Precinct 13, or the remake, or Ghosts of Mars or District B-13, any of those things, just go ahead, turn out the podcast, go watch those. It's maybe, what, 10 hours worth of movie, something like that. And then come on back. 
we'll still be here. So, Aaron, when was the first time you saw Assault on Precinct 13, and what did you think? Well, when I first saw it is probably right after I discovered Escape from New York. You know, I had already seen Halloween, but I didn't put the at that. I was very young. I didn't put that connection with John Carpenter together till much later. But I saw Escape from New York, loved it, still worship that movie. We're going to talk about that one later. And so I started checking out all of Carpenter's repertoire and found this one. And it was, I remember thinking, huh, that's like the same score. That's the number one thing I, I think I remembered. It felt very reminiscent of Escape from New York in terms of the score. The score felt very similar. And then basically just, well, it was a pretty interesting movie, but I never really came back to it until just recently. It holds up, though, I think. I, you may not, but I did. And Father Malone, how about yourself? Yeah, I saw it pretty young. I kind of grew up with a bunch of irresponsible older cousins who would drag me to every movie uh, that they went to. So I had seen Escape from New York in the theater and went crazy for it. So I was about seven, I guess. Wow. And then two years later, they took me to the – yeah, exactly. And then two years later, they uh, I, I was taken to a double bill at a drive-in of uh, Paul Schrader's Cat People and John Carpenter's The Thing. And because he so conveniently placed his name above the title on his films, he's one of the first filmmakers that I absolutely knew who was making those movies – but a year or so later, once video stores started proliferating, I would always grab whatever said John Carpenter on it. And so I probably saw this around 1984 or so. And uh, I went crazy for it because it felt like the thing with guns. It felt like the thing and Escape from New York sort of combined. I've loved it ever since. I've uh, Every couple of years I watched it, I actually relished the opportunity for reviewing it today with you guys to watch it again. So. I came to this one really late, and I think it was friend of the show, Mike Thompson, that clued me into it. I don't know why I hadn't checked it out. I for sure had seen like Halloween and The Thing and a few other Carpenters, but his back catalog was not necessarily something that I was that familiar with. And I specifically remember renting this one when I was working at Blockbuster Renting this, renting Dark Star around the same time, not really getting into Dark Star too much, but absolutely loving Assault on Precinct 13. Thompson described it to me as a mashup of Rio Bravo and Night of the Living Dead. Now, he's not forging any new ground by having that comparison. I think that's a pretty well-known comparison of those other two movies to Assault on Precinct 13. But then you add into it a little Once Upon a Time in the West with this whole, you know, I'll tell you what my name is at the moment of dying kind of thing. To have this really kick-ass African-American lead and then to have this fantastic Napoleon Wilson character, very, very strong female characters, threats from outside you never necessarily know when those gang members are outside just everything i think it was the moment when kim richards bought it that i just said this is the movie for me it does seem to be the scene that most people walked away from even if they didn't like the movie everyone was shocked by that because who does that in a film who kills kids well and who kills kim richards yeah kim yeah exactly escape from which mountain i watched escape from which mountain Oh, several times when I was uh, in elementary school, it was one of those like wheel in the TV set and we're going to watch a movie kind of thing. 
Kim Richards was also in Escape from Witch Mountain, and her younger sister was in Halloween as little Lindsay Wallace, yeah. Hey, this is regular vanilla. I wanted vanilla twist. When he murders her, he doesn't even look at her. And I love that that was the guy that played Romero uh, from Escape from New York. We'll be talking about that a little bit later this week. But yeah, to see Frank Doubleday in that role, oh my God. It was, yeah, just that moment and just the way that they set up everything and that we have these like, different groups that it's you know we we start off with like austin actually we start off with gang violence and i really like this whole idea i mean it's very very similar to the warriors this whole idea of like what if the gangs had the wherewithal to all get together and they would become this unstoppable force and i really like this unspoken thing but very obvious of the racial makeup of the group and that the four guys are making this blood oath because the the six guys got murdered by the cops these faceless cops i really like the way that these guys are murdered this movie just kicks it in high gear really fast and that kid didn't even get to finish her ice cream cone. She just wanted her vanilla twist. Yeah, she just wanted the right ice cream cone. It was unnecessary. The opening sort of moments in the movie when we're bouncing from scene to scene and character to character, it's, I think, really skillful the way each of these seemingly random acts are going to result in the, the, the film that we get. And, I, you know, every major plot ought to strive towards that, but it seemed elegantly done. All of the minor choices these characters are making are going to uh, add up to the sum of a whole, rather than just having a couple of scenes with character pieces and then let's throw them together into a whole situation that is not of their making. Like, it seems organically done. I've always thought this movie in particular, he's got a couple of them, but John Carpenter had a really, even though I didn't love all of his movies, Ghost of Mars, I'm still going to be mad at Mike for making me rewatch that one. Ditto. But he did have a, a good grasp on racial dynamics and socioeconomical dynamics. Like he, he understood the world a little bit better than I think a lot of filmmakers did and kind of appreciated the, the world, the real, the realistic, gritty world that is out there. And I always, I've always appreciated that about Carpenter. And this movie really showcases that. I also appreciate his use of the radio as being a device to give us information. Not only the radio that Austin Stoker is listening to on his way to the police station, but also the police radio and that you get different things coming from these different sources. And it's really up to you to piece together these things to actually have to listen to the radio broadcast and hear about, you know, the violence that had happened. And the, I, I finally, I wrote it down because, um, I never really made the connection before. Let's see what the name of the group street thunder, but also that we get to hear about the sunspots that are going on. And that even makes a little reference to the sunspots. Am I correct in remembering were sunspots or was it a satellite that could have been the cause of the zombies rising from the dead in Night of the Living Dead. Yeah, it was a satellite returning from its trip to uh, Venus. Thank you. Okay. And it was burning up in the atmosphere, and that may or may not be causing it. It felt similar to that, just like the sunspots may or may not be causing these gangs to join forces. 
yeah, I, I think a clear ode to some of its inspirational source material with that. There's so many odes in this movie. There's a lot of odes. Yeah, I'm surprised that they don't say, do you want to make a little music, Napoleon? Darwin Johnston, I recognize him in other things. Like, I'll be like, oh, hey, that, that's Napoleon Wilson. But this role was literally made for him. And he is so good in it. And just those stupid one-liners that he gets, the whole, I don't sit in chairs as well as I used to, all of those things. Just the screen crackles every time that he's on on there. I'm so happy every time we get a little bit more Napoleon Wilson and also that we never get the whole story. That he's always just like deflecting, deflecting, deflecting. Like when Charles Cipher sits down next to him, he's just like, okay. You don't mind if I sit on a minute or two, Dave Wilson? Got a smoke on you? Uh, you asked me before. Well, I never got a definite answer. I don't smoke. That's a definite answer. What do you want? Why, do I have to want something? You're a cop. You're either curious about me, or you want to give me some shit. I don't understand you, Wilson. Curious. You're not a psychopath. You're not stupid. I am an asshole. Can't take everything away from me. Why did you kill those men? Everybody asks me the same question. I always tell them the same thing. First time I ever saw a preacher, he said to me, son, there's something strange about you. You got something to do with death. Being real young, I believed him. Turned out he was right. That's no answer. I thought it was pretty good. And he really just never gives up any information. He's got a presence on screen where you can tell that there's an inner life going on in his, you know, behind the eyes, which I think there are two actors in here because you mentioned one earlier, Frank Doubleday. Same sort of thing where they're just interesting to like watch the guy, but Darwin Johnston, Johnston rather, his performance is really good because those lines are so corny and it, that they land at all is because of him. But I also noticed rewatching the movie recently, he asks everyone who approaches him if they have a cigarette. I think that's obviously because he really wants a cigarette. But at the same time, he seems to be gauging their character based on how they respond to him. When Bishop approaches him in the cell and he asks him for a cigarette, he's like, no, I'm sorry, I don't smoke. Like, I would give it to you if I had it. Like, he, there's a moment of recognition there that Darwin Justin, like, uh, registers that I thought was, like, really good. I really like the moment when it's very Rio Bravo when Austin Stoker throws a shotgun and Darwin Justin catches it. And after he blasts those gang members that are coming through the windows, there's that moment where you see the look on his face and it's like a little bit crazed. And it's like, is he going to turn around and start blasting the good guys? I really like that moment. And then that you can see it go away very quickly as well. I mean, that to me is just one of the better moments of the film. And this film is just chock full of great moments. That moment, just the sort of balletic uh, nature of the violence is super cool. But I agree. It's one of the few times in any movie I can tell where you see a character go from the this sort of laconic thing that we don't really understand to see who he really is. 
that look on his face that you mentioned, like after he's fired the gun, it's like, oh yeah, this is what I was made for. So it's an interesting moment where he's like, do I just keep shooting? No. Okay. I'll, I'll be cool. Really fantastic. Like, honestly, hadn't noticed a lot of these moments before sort of reevaluating it for this uh, podcast. But I mean, I've always liked the sort of surfacey elements. And now I'm seeing that the, there's actually quite a bit going on underneath. There's a reason why he's in jail. And there's a reason why he has this reputation. And that one moment gives you that insight to be like, that's the reason. Because there are probably a lot of times where that same thing or similar, where he's had that shotgun in his hands before and wasn't able to stop himself from just blowing away everything. Carpenter loves this particular type of hero. I think he repeated him any number of times, Snake Plissken being the obvious heir to this character. But it's rare that you get a character where the anti-hero sort of legendary status that they have, it doesn't pay off as well as this moment. I think that's even true of Escape from New York. You look at that character and you know what he's capable of. This guy, you could tell there's some violence in him, but you couldn't tell exactly like uh, how well he's cotton to it. <laughs> the mask never slips from Snake Plissken. We always get the same stoic look on his face. That's a beautiful stoic look. We, we, we don't need to be negative about that. No, we're going to be singing the praises of that one in the next episode. You guys are praising him, and I, I totally understand that. But I also love how by the end of the film, you've got Bishop, I don't want to say going to his level, but realizing he's going to have to get as visceral and violent as him if he wants to survive. Like that end where, they're, where they have the, the barrier and they're pushing back and they're just fighting with everything they can find to, to fend them off, I think is a, is a great testament to this is what it takes if you want to survive. Do you really want to survive? This is what it takes. Like he understood it the whole time, but Bishop didn't understand until the end. I also really like the sexual tension between the Laurie Zimmer character and the Napoleon Wilson character or Lay and Napoleon Wilson. Is it Lee or Lay? Lee. Uh, it's the seventies. He probably meant it one way and it came out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that they have that and they go back and forth and there's that flirtation and stuff, but they never really bring it to fruition, which is nice that there's that flirtation and that she again is such a confident character. It's like, you've got her and Ethan Bishop and Napoleon Wilson as being these very, very strong characters. And then you get, Julie, the Nancy Loomis character, and then Wells, the Tony Burton character, they just fly off the handle at a moment's notice. <laughs> but yeah. they're great counterpoints to these really stoic, cooler-than-cool characters. They're so stoic that everyone, by comparison, is going to seem ridiculous anyway. To speak to what you said, sort of the, the sort of sexual chemistry or uh, uh, you know electricity between those two characters, it's really fantastic. Unspoken at all but powerful in that like in that last scene where they're trying to take her away to the hospital because she's been shot she's considering not going because she didn't get to have a moment with this guy really super cool as you said mike like all of these characters are strong carpenter's way ahead of the game as far as busting gender stereotypes and racial stereotypes uh, with this one movie i mean he continued to do it i think throughout his career but Certainly in this one. At one time or another, I thought that particular actress is like not so great. But then that character is so sort of stone faced like everybody else that you can kind of give it a pass, you know? Oh, and she gets shot and just <laughs> just waits. I'm like, what? What happened? Like, that was a great precursor to Michael Myers, honestly. Yeah, nothing is going to slow her down. Just 
puts that one arm down, keeps shooting with the other arm. No problems. <laughs> Doesn't even phase. Just just waits. Just like, all right, come closer. Come, come, mm-hmm. come here. And you're so right, Father Malone, as far as that smoking line. And I love uh, Tony Burton. Hey, what? You got a smoke on you? Yeah, but I'm not going to give it to you. Why not? Not good for you. Smoking can kill you. Uh, you don't like competition, huh? You think you're real fancy, don't you? I have moments. He's got my favorite line in the movie. It's something I say too frequently in life. I've got a plan, and it's save ass. I'm going to go through this window, run like a bastard. Some of these one-liners, like Lay is uh, getting her, getting him some coffee, getting uh, Bishop some coffee. Black? For over 30 years. What was the swear that's been inscribed in a desk for all these years? Carpenter keeps that to himself. I love that he gives uh, the Bishop character basically Alfred Hitchcock's backstory. The whole thing of uh, his dad sending him to the police station. You know, you know what we do to bad little boys around mm-hmm. here. And it's one of those little like film moments where if you're not that familiar with the Hitchcock story, it just goes by and you're like, oh, okay, yeah, that happened to Bishop. But then if you're a film fan, you're like, oh, that sounds a little, oh, okay, yeah, I know where that's from. And it's nice that he's able to do that. It's not, you know, he's not just doing this to be cool. He is cool. Carpenter, that is, is cool with these references. But he's not bashing us over the head. This isn't like pop culture, junky kind of stuff. It's not like he's sitting there eating a bowl of Captain Crunch or Fruit Brute at the same time. Just like, hey, look at how cool I am. And the the best one about the Hitchcock thing is Hitchcock, if you really follow his films, he's notorious for not really appreciating policemen. Like he just, he found, he finds cops very dull. And I just thought that was ironic too. I'm like, you're going to give Hitchcock's backstory to the cop? I think that's hysterical. You know, Hitchcock's reasoning for not feeling comfortable around police is that they're the one person who can say, come over here and you have to go, which is another thing that sort of resonates with me a little too much. So putting that story in there and having it be a film reference, it was great because at that time, like you would have had to have heard that story. It's not like the internet where you just type in something and now you're like, ah, now I've got the reference. So it was subtle enough that, that, that it works for film fans and not, you know, not so, as you said, like eating a bowl of fruit brute, and, hey, here's this other thing you remember, right? And we all get this, right? Well, I do like, too, the Martin West character that he doesn't want to go to the police. Like, when he's lost in the neighborhood and his daughter's like, Why don't we ask them? Uh, Bonaire Place. I think it's down here just a couple of blocks more. Mr. Seward says the policeman's always there to answer questions and to help you when you're in trouble. Obviously, Mrs. Seward has never taken any big steps outside of the sixth grade. Huh? Uh, yeah, we're, we're not in trouble, honey. Uh, we don't need to involve them. I'm an upstanding, middle-class white guy, and I'm afraid to go to the police, much less the rest of the people in this neighborhood. Everyone is suspicious of the cops. And then, going back to the gang again, when they chase him down, chase down the Martin West character... And, I mean, does he even have a line after that? No. I'm trying to think, like, when his last mm-hmm. line I is. So. I think it's when he's on the phone while his daughter's getting killed. I think that might be the last time he ever speaks in he's this He's pretty catatonic film. after that, I think. It's like you can see him try to say something as they're wheeling him out, but, yeah, he never says a word. And then killing Frank Doubleday, going on the run from there, 
going to the police station and it clearly weighed heavy on his mind. What a great twist that is. But by the way, that is a that is a great twist because I didn't remember that. I haven't seen this movie in years. So when I was watching it, I forgot about him killing him. So that was a nice little, oh, wow, that was a that took a turn. I thought this guy is going to be there to the end. I've been hearing that same sort of line about the comparison for this movie as far as it's uh, uh, Rio Bravo and Night of the Living Dead. And the movie is Rio Bravo for a portion. And then once these two characters come into it, suddenly we're in Night of the Living Dead territory in ways that I hadn't even recognized with – in Night of the Living Dead, it begins with them on their way to their mother's grave, and that's where they encounter the zombies, and then th- they lead it all sort of further along. But of course, here, that's, you know, they're trying to get the grandmother out. But it's the same set of circumstances, down to the fact that Barbara, who is our through line for Night of the Living Dead until we get to uh, Dwayne Jones, like, as soon as the rest of the characters are gathered together and we're ready for this final fight. She does the exact same thing, which is she just shuts down completely. So I think the night of living dead parallel is more apt than the Rio Bravo, which I think superficially sort of uh, mirrors this film. But yeah, these guys are zombies, right? (laughs) I mean, once, once the shit goes down, they don't talk. Mm-hmm. They don't talk in the way that they're just continuously crawling through the windows, even after they're getting blown away. You know, like as soon as one guy dies, another guy replaces them. And it's just, it's a numbers game. It's all about how many of these gang members can they send through these windows, through the doors and all this. And, and really at the end, they're basically just trying to overwhelm them with the numbers. And that's the thing. Like before we had fast moving zombies, it was. Just that zombies never stopped and they just kept coming and their numbers were basically infinite. You know, we've had so many people die over the years that they just, yeah, they're always coming, coming, coming. And it was the, the, the overwhelming you with numbers was really the thing rather than I'm going to run faster than you ever could in your lifetime and bite (laughs) you to have the African American lead having Austin Stoker in this as your lead character, just like Dwayne Jones and having Bishop as the counterpoint to Ben is really, really a smart thing to do as well. And yeah, Carpenter was way ahead having a black guy, a woman and a white dude as your main characters. And really at the end of the day, I would say that Bishop is the protagonist. He's the guy that carries us through the whole thing Mm -hmm. more than Napoleon, more than lay, it's really kind of his story. He's he's our John T. Chance, who who also coincidentally edited this movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I did notice that. When I was talking with Tommy Wallace, I was talking to him about the scene where the Martin West character, Lawson, where he murders Frank Doubleday. And I was complimenting him on the sound design of that. And I had to say, when I rewatched the movie yesterday, I wasn't watching with headphones. So it was completely, I, I was even listening for it and I couldn't hear the sound of this heartbeat that's on the soundtrack. But if you watch the movie, either very loud, more loud than my wife would have liked, or with headphones, <laughs> you can hear just how subtle the sound mix is. It's really well done. And that this was, one of Carpenter's first films is just amazing. Carpenter didn't sort of settle for after Dark Star, which is, you know, effectively just a student film. Like, as soon as he got a chance to make a movie, he was like, let's make a movie. I mean, the movie's in widescreen. And as you said, Mike, the sound design is actually exceptional. If you can have a sequence like the the sort of the first shootout sequence involves really no people at all. It's just the the, the bullets whizzing in through the windows 
And the sound is uh, spectacular and that really sells it. That's an exciting scene in a movie where really nothing is happening except glasses breaking and some papers are flying. Uh, I, I, I adore that. Stellar job of making sure that you're immersed into it as well. So you're with them on the floor, panicked, hearing it on all sides, the glasses shattering. They're, they're panning around the room as you see different glass pop, glass areas pop. And it's just, it really immerses you in terms of, oh my, I'm there. Like this, this would be awful. I don't want to deal with this ever. When they do it so smart too, as far as the way that the gang members attack and then they'll pause and you never know, is it safe outside? Can I open up the door? Can I go out? I love the moment when the one cop goes outside and the the Julie character says, uh, (laughs) Cheney just fell down. She's laughing about this guy falling down. But no, he's been murdered with a silenced gun. I'm like, oh, not too funny. And it takes a minute before she realizes or before anybody realizes what's going on. Then it's like, no, we're in deep shit. Sorry, Julie. Yeah, I will say I grew up on the projects. True story. And I've never seen a gang that coordinated in my life. That was military formation in certain points. I'm like, what? They had training? What are they, boot camp in in LA? I don't know what's going on. You don't fuck with Street Thunder. I would not be surprised if some of them are uh, Vietnam vets. I mean, this is 76 when this is going on. They probably, a lot of them came back from Vietnam. They're disenfranchised. Hey, you made it work. I like it. And you get the one guy who's got the fucking Che Guevara look going on. And I'm just like, holy shit, this guy's serious. You can tell if, if a guy's wearing a beret, he's definitely serious. Oh, the with the four horsemen there? Yeah, that's what I'm calling them. I don't know what they call them, but they're the four horsemen to me. Oh, yeah. Them driving around L.A. and the way that they're looking through the scope. And it's just like, wow, he could kill any of these people. And they don't know how narrowly they avoided it. I don't think those guys, other than saying... Maybe the word six at the beginning when they're opening up their veins. I don't think they say anything. They're super scary because they don't go off and shout about how great they are or, you know, that we're going to kill you motherfuckers or any of that kind of stuff. They're just so quiet and deadly. It just makes sense that the police were trying to wipe them out uh, at the beginning. They understood how deadly they can be. And I agree that that sequence where Frank Doubleday has leaned out the car window with a, with a sniper scope, like it's horrifying. I mean, it's a little more commonplace nowadays, it seems with mass shootings and such. But, you know, growing up watching it, that was another unheard of moment, this sort of random act. Like and later, it, you know, he, it pays off with him killing the, the little girl. Like, is it me or does Carpenter like really pushing every boundary he could with the limitation that he knew he was making a B movie? He amped the levels up like, I don't know. It's, it's always just sort of uh, shocked me, like, uh, you know, how, how tense the opening sequence of the movie is when really nothing is happening for like 40 minutes. But I think the opening is very important because, yes, they're all, I mean, they're villains, essentially, you know, when you get to the, the four gang members and whatnot, and they're setting this up. But that opening is so instrumental in terms of, I don't want to say empathy, but but a little bit of empathy because you hit the ground with some kind of, well, I get why it started. You know, I, I get why this whole thing began. And by the way, shout out to the 310 to Yuma reference. I think that's got to be what that is, right? 310. And then this whole thing kicks into action. I, I just, I really love that it grounded it in some kind of semblance of empathy with the gang, even though we should never empathize with them. Well, the way the cops shoot them down, it's very much like, they're going through a gulch and the cops are on either side and they just start picking them off. You know, it's very much like 
the bad guys in a Western uh, after the good guys are just like, oh, we'll trick them and we'll send them down here. And that's what they do. They just start picking these guys off. It's a massacre. But straight up murder. Yeah, there were no warning shots fired. You can tell this guy has just wanted to make a Western his entire life, but has figured out a way to keep making them in an urban environment. South Central Los Angeles, even when I was living there, was a very sort of hellscape kind of terrain. But, you know, what we get to see here, it's it's even worse. It might as well be 1870 in the middle of the desert. Tumbleweeds blowing through. It's so empty. It's like when they're driving around, they just see like a, a person here, a person there. But there are many shots where it's just like there's no one around as they're driving around in this kind of perpetual dusk as they, you know, it's like I, I do love that. Why is the ice cream man out so late? I'm not <laughs> really sure, but <laughs> there's but he never really a bad to say, time for ice cream. Yeah, no, no. He doesn't get to say we're closed, you know, that it is very late. And I was like, okay, yeah, because uh, noticing how Carpenter treats time in this, it's like until the gang really starts to attack the police station, it is dusk for the longest time. And until actually until uh, Martin West kills Frank Doubleday, and then it's like, okay, now it's dark. Now things are going to start going bad. And even then, I think we get a shot of the precinct with 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 it being dusk again. Like anytime we would cut to the a full exterior, there was still a sliver of sunlight at the top of the screen. It's such a horrible area that the ice cream man needs a gun. Yeah, why is that his daily route? <laughs> he's, he's like, you just never know what kind of trouble is going to start. I do also really appreciate that little moment. It's a little bit tense, but not again, not hitting you over the head with it. That moment when Lay says to Bishop, Your father or somebody obviously got you out of Anderson early enough. No one took me out of Anderson when I was a baby. I walked out myself when I was 20. That's nice. That's really nice. And again, talking about the backstories of these characters, I think he's the most fleshed out because you get to know all of that stuff about him. And I love the way that Carpenter is transmitting that information to us that it's just like a little bit here a little bit there it's not like let me read through your uh, file here son <laughs> it says here <laughs> you grew up in anderson oh and uh well you you got out of here when you're 20 and then went to the police academy you know fuck all that stuff i love the way that carpenter just like doles it out in little pieces and it's up to us to put it together what was the line? There are no heroes anymore, just men who follow orders. Isn't that the line? Yeah, that was very prolific. It seems to carry over into today. As much backstory as we get to Bishop, like there is a moment where he's coming back to work for he's been away for an extended time. They don't actually tell us what he was on suspension or vacation or, or anything, do they? No. They hit us over the head with it in the in the goddamn remake. But I always like the ambiguity of that. Like was he suspended or did he take some time off or something horrible happened to him? Or, you know, was he just like on vacation? Who knows that he gets this assignment? He he likes that captain that he speaks to on the, the police radio. But then when he gets that assignment, it's just like, oh, man, you know, it's like he, I think he, it almost feels to me like he got a promotion or something and that yeah, he's he got promotion. ready for bigger and better things. And then he gets this shit assignment. It's just like, oh man, I really, I, I was looking forward to like doing some real police work here. And now I'm stuck babysitting this stupid <laughs> police station. 
And in the remake, the bad guy is Bishop. So it's totally different. Oh, God. Yeah. We are going to have to talk about that <laughs> stupid remake. Three for. I like the remake. Uh, <laughs> bad, way better than Ghosts of Mars, buddy. Let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen Ghosts of Mars many more times than I've seen the remake. Well, that's just too bad for you, is what I would say. <laughs> I love Carpenter, but that's the one movie. Mm mm. Well, I saw Ghost of Mars in the theater, and I've seen it a couple of times in a, was it really this bad kind of a way? But until I had to fully watch the the remake for this, uh, I could not get through more than 20 minutes of it. So I'll say Ghost of Mars is actually the, the, the winner of those two. If you made me watch them again. Didn't you love how overtly the sexual tension was in the remake versus this one, where it's all subtle and kind of under the radar? And in that one, like, oh, let's make sure the dress is as short as possible. Let's get the shortest stockings. Let's make sure to keep mentioning it. Good God. It was clumsy at best. Going back to the original for a few minutes here. Sometimes I like the trope of grown men acting like children. And we get that pretty often and i'd say in action films and this one is no exception that whole moment when tony burton and justin are trying to do potatoes, potatoes. Oh <laughs> it's amazing what a moment in the middle of this carnage between me and snow white shit 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 what's wrong we haven't flipped a coin yet i'm gonna lose you got a bad attitude wells i always lose had bad luck all my life. Now, how do you think I ended up in here? Maybe it'll change. It might. If we don't flip a coin. Let's do something else. What? Potatoes. One, two, two, three, 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 four, five, three, six, three, seven, three, more. Eight, three, nine, three, ten, eleven. Get my ass and go to heaven. Why oh, you spell you? I told you I'd lose. God damn it, we're going to do it again. Hey, hey. There wasn't time. So good. I really appreciate that. We're going again. And then, yeah. The whole thing of like, I don't like coin flips. I always lose coin flips. <laughs> I mean, Tony Burton is fucking fantastic in everything he does, but just this small, fairly thankless role, I really like him in this. He's spectacular in it. Carpenter really, he cast his films very well. Like all of these character actors effectively bring a lot of story with them that isn't necessarily on the page. Like that, that Tony Burton is so charming that, you know, that's all we need to know about him. Clearly capable too. like, you know, as, as, uh, ignominious an end as he comes to, like, uh, you know, he was a, a welcome addition to this team. Why did you stop me from leaving then? And it's like, you basically had to be convinced to not just take off on us. I really like that little pause in there and the way that they have those dialogues. I mean, this movie, it's a, one of Carpenter's first films, but I really appreciate the dialogue. I really appreciate the subtlety to it. I love, you know, I, I mentioned that whole, like, I'll, you know, I'll tell you at the moment of dying kind of thing that, that harmonica line from Once Upon a Time in the West. I love when he flips that and. Can I ask you a question? Being a cop, I figured you'd get around to it eventually. How did you come to be named Napoleon Wilson? I'll tell you sometime. When will you tell me? Maybe in a minute or two. Or I like when Tony Burton realizes that that he hasn't the silenced gun has been out of bullets for a while. He's just been <laughs> he's just been shooting at people with blanks effectively. 
I go through all that and his gun isn't even loaded. Goddamn silencer. I've been clicking off empty shots all night and I didn't even know it. My favorite moment, the whole movie. That's my favorite moment. And yeah, you get that amazing moment after they manage to defeat the bad guys and the cops finally fucking show up. It's like that. I kept thinking of Sergeant Al Powell, like throughout so much of this <laughs> from Die Hard rewatching it. Yeah. Because of the cops going around and being like, hmm, no, I don't see anything. I don't see anything. And I kept waiting for Bishop to start shooting at the car. Like, welcome to the party, pal. <laughs> like, how does that? math work really i mean it's la if you've been to la i mean there there's people everywhere so they're constantly reporting the shots being fired they keep driving by and they're, eh, i don't see nothing i mean I don't see nothing. they don't see anybody clearing bodies they don't see the broken windows they, <laughs> these should not be police officers they just shouldn't well that's the thing too that i like that the gang members like move the cars that they take away the bodies that they are very supernatural you know the way that they go about doing that it's very nice that they manage to fool the cops that way they're super smart military formation they are of one mind and that's what's going to have to happen you know speaking of those two patrolmen who keep circling and finding nothing the entire time the one driving is a guy named Alan Koss, who, when I was watching it again now, I was like, who is that? I know him from somewhere. He spent the better part of the 1980s as one of the barflies in Cheers. That was a little startling <laughs> to, to see. Yeah, he's like Mike or something, right? Something he Mike was, or He Al- was Mike, and, the, and by the end, they just called him Alan. Like, uh, the, I think all of the barflies have eventually just sort of adopted their real names. But yeah, yeah, he was Mike for a while. I like how the cops only noti- notice that there's something going wrong when they see a dead telephone worker. Like, oh, all right. There's probably something wrong here. Yeah, in the in the film's sort of most overt nod to Rio Bravo, that uh, that scene where uh, the guy's hiding up in the rafters. I had actually never seen Rio Bravo, believe it or not. So uh, I was pleased to watch it because, you know, John Wayne's one of those guys where he just sort of symbolizes a kind of uh, ethos that I I'm not fond of, and I never really. Like, I never quite got it, but I did in that movie. I think he's really good in it. And uh, I, I like the whole cast. And uh, it was a f- I'm, I'm glad I watched it. So thank you for making me watch it. It was really good. Oh, man. Thanks for making us do that one, because that was a blessing. That really was. I, I hadn't seen that since I was a kid. And I watched that with my grandpa. And I, he loved John Wayne. And I just didn't understand why at the time. But I remember him smiling every time he watched it. And I just rewatched it. And I'm like, ah, I finally get it. I'm finally at the age where I get it. That was probably my first John Wayne film that I actually remember sitting down and watching. And yeah, I so connected with him. The thing about that movie is that I enjoy all of those characters. I just really, I mean, the, the little Mexican guy who's running the hotel, the guy who is um, shooting his mouth off about like how John T needs some help and everything um, that is Colorado's boss. And then you get that moment of Dean Martin, Walter Brennan, and Ricky Nelson all singing. And it's just like, holy shit, this is like one of the greatest things. And then I love, too, that it's like, okay, we're done with this song. Let's sing another one. It's like, wow, okay, we're going to get two songs from these guys. (laughs) It's so much deeper than a typical Western. It's friendship, alcoholism. It's independent women. Uh, It's when can you ask for help? When should you ask for help? Stop being stubborn and ask for help. I mean, there's so many things that happen in that movie. You could take any of those characters and spin off a movie just 
unto themselves. You know, like the Colorado character, the dude character. Yeah, any of these people. And that you mash them all together in one movie. It's like, wow, this is really nice. Yeah, I, I saw Ricky Nelson's name in the credits and I was like, oh boy, what are we in for? But I, I really liked his performance a lot. Like, yeah, I, I could definitely watch a movie about that kid. Oh yeah, he's such a stand-up guy. I love that thing when uh, he has to ask his boss for permission rather than listening to the sheriff. He's just like, is that all right with you, boss? It's like, oh, okay, we see how it is. This is nice. Kid had respect. And that's what puts him on his path to join up with John T. Is like, hey, they killed my boss. I need revenge. I was like, oh, wow, okay. And then fucking Claude Aikens, poor Claude Aikens, who you barely get to see in the movie, but every time he's on screen, he's fantastic as basically the uh, comatose father from Assault on Precinct 13. And this has got to be one of Dean Martin's better performances, right? Oh, God, yeah. Especially the first time you see him when he's so desperate to go after that coin. And then they jettisoned all that for Assault on Precinct 13. <laughs> and just that he's putting himself down, and he's talking about that silver ring that's on his hat, and how many drinks he could buy for that, the whole bath thing. Yeah. yeah, it's so good. Each character has their own arc, and I just appreciate that so much. I do love the end of Assault on Precinct 13 with this whole, the cops trying to put the manacles on Wilson. Bishop is just like, it would be my honor to to walk you outside. It's just like, oh, that is nice. That respect that he shows someone who is there for him. Nobody else was there for him, but Wilson was. You know, Wilson and Lay were there, and it was just like, that's nice. That is really nice. Well, the best payback is, I, I know it would. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love that. That's the way you answer that. That's how a badass answers that right there. Have we mentioned the score yet? Because it's one of my favorite Carpenter scores. And uh, so early on, and when you figure that they're like, you know, they were using like tube synthesizers at the time. So like each note had to be programmed. Like, uh, God bless him. One of the more memorable scores, as far as I can tell. It is fantastic. And I love when it, there's moments where almost like two synthesizers that are going on at the same time. And sometimes they'll come together. And then other times they'll almost be like, like a, a minor on top of a major. So it just sounds off and it makes you uncomfortable. And then it goes back into tune. You know, it's like, this is really nice. And just that, the, the constant kind of drum noise that it's like, yeah, it really. And I like that in, the counterpoint to it is like every time there's a, a, a quiet scene, it's it's this nice sort of tune on an electric piano that feels as synthetic as the synthesizer, but somehow a little more human. The thing I appreciate most, I think, about John Carpenter's movies is, you know, he has great characters and he usually has great picks for the acting. But when he does a score, it always I mean, I know he's he's tailor making it, but it always feels tailor made like it. I start to think if that had any other score, this movie would not be as good. You wouldn't enjoy it as much. It wouldn't be as B-movie kitsch as it is. You know, it wouldn't be, you wouldn't remember it 40, 50 years later. I really think his throwing of his own scores in his films is a big portion of why we still talk about them more than than just the characters and the, and the uh, actors he cast. To your point from earlier, Father Malone, the whole idea of him putting his name above the title, he definitely fit into that idea of an auteur and this whole idea of like, I do so much of this, you know, do the editing, do the writing, do the directing, do the score. Yes, he had a lot of help and we'll hear about that in a few minutes, but 
he really was the driver of so much of this stuff that it just made sense for this to be called John Carpenter's Assault on Precinct 13. And I know that changed later. Obviously, he worked with bigger crews who were doing more for him. But I'm not a huge fan of the auteur theory. And I think most times when somebody is saying that this is my thing, it's like they were the one component that sort of brought all the other components together. But certainly early on and enough in his movies, I don't have a problem with John Carpenter throwing his name over the title. It's it's definitely a John Carpenter film. And you know that if the editor was sick that day, he was editing it, you know, like – uh, right down to like laying the score on it. So, uh, good, good for him. And I'm, I'm glad he put his name on his, uh, on his movies like that. It feels a little odd when other people do it, but for some reason with him, it works. The brother loved his own font, man. I mean, I know that's not his font, but it's like when I see that font anytime it's used, it's like, oh, that's the John Carpenter font. Albertus is the name of that font. Yes. And yes, it is 100% John Carpenter's. Yeah, he owned that after a while. It was just like after two, three, four movies using that font. I was like, yep, that's him. Nice, simple title over a black background, and off we go in the Albertus font. When I see that font show up in other movies, I'm, I immediately check out. I'm just like, fuck you. You're not yours. Quentin Tarantino. Hey, 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 stop that. Guy that guy fucking uses so many font faces. It drives me crazy. I think I counted in the beginning of Inglorious Bastards, there were like seven different font faces. I was like, for fuck's sake, just pick one! It seemed he had his own for a while, but I guess not. The opening title card of Pulp Fiction is very distinct, and then, yeah, everything else just kind of does its own thing for a bit. But he would use that sort of, like, almost courier in yellow kind of font that he used for the first couple of films, and that felt like organic, like, carpenter was doing and then you know just became a grab bag of look how cool i am he should use albertus as an homage i'm sure like somebody like in grindhouse they might have used it like uh i would figure robert rodriguez would have caught into that planet terror would have fit with that as opposed to what was his his shit uh what was death proof death proof yeah oh god and is, is there any director really who emulates john carpenter nowadays more than robert rodriguez i mean he he took it to the next step he really emulates him in in terms of doing everything himself and the score and everything across special effects even right yeah so he's he's a pretty good analog for john carpenter the difference of course being is i love a great majority of john carpenter's movies i love the early (laughs) the early robert rodriguez movies i think uh um what's it called Uh, from dust till dawn is a very well directed movie yeah i wasn't even a fan of once upon a time in mexico after grindhouse it, it was a rough ride I did like Planet Terror, though. I will admit that. Planet Terror was great. That was great. I freaking love that movie. Absolutely love it. I'm a bastard. I'm not a fucking bastard. It's still one of my favorite lines of movie history. I wish that it had moved from Desperate Hours to Evil Dead a little bit sooner than it did. I think the script was written a little bit tighter than the end product, the end movie, but yeah, I, I will admit, and I will also say, and I'll go down on the record here right now so people can hear this, that's the only time I've ever liked Quentin Tarantino as an actor is in that movie. He's good. Yeah, he's actually acting. Yeah, it's a, it's a sight to behold. That's the only time he was ever able to pull off a role. That's fair. It's Richie. Yeah. yeah, I could see that. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, I'll agree with, I'll agree with that too. And does contain one of my favorite lines in any movie, honestly, uh, as much as I, I, I don't think it's a great movie, which is, uh, you guys got any food? Best in Mexico. I kind of doubt it. I love that line. 
And still, I don't care how many nominations he's had, how many produ- I don't care what he's done, the best George Clooney has ever been. All right, guys, uh, let's quit talking about uh, both John Carpenter and uh, Robert Rodriguez for a second and play a break. But when we come back, we'll have a pair of interviews. First, we are going to hear from Mr. Troy Howarth about his new book, Assault on the System, the Nonconformist Cinema of John Carpenter. And after that, we will hear from the art director, sound editor, and so much more on Assault on Precinct 13, Mr. Tommy Wallace. And we'll be back with both of those right after these brief messages. In 1985, a curious phenomenon occurred. The Twilight Zone returned to television, featuring all new tales of mystery and imagination from the minds of Ray Bradbury, Harlan Ellison, George R.R. Martin, and Stephen King. Dreams for Sale, the Twilight Zone 85 podcast looks back at that land of shadow and substance and re-examines the groundbreaking successor to Rod Serling's legacy. Featuring new interviews with the show's creators and cast, Dreams for Sale can be found on iTunes and at TwilightZone85.com. Dreams for Sale. We'll be waiting for you in the Twilight Zone. You obviously love podcasts, but are you also a fan of movies and television? Do you want to listen to a show that reviews entertainment honestly and casts pretentiousness to the wind? That debates both film and TV topics in a fun, good-spirited way, while still getting to the heart of why we all love them so much? Then don't miss the award-winning weekly podcast, The Hollywood Outsider. Now available on your favorite podcast app or at thehollywoodoutsider.com. Join me, Jamie Benning, on the Film Inventories podcast, particularly if you enjoy stories like designer Nilo Rodis Jamiro convincing George Lucas to push him around to help gain the support of his crew on the ailing Howard the Duck. Plam, the door opens, it's George. Everybody gasps. George makes a beeline to me. I'm literally back against the wall. Or hear puppeteer Tim Rose's emotional story behind that iconic Admiral Akbar shot in Return of the Jedi. I believe the war is something... To be proud of, but not to celebrate. Or how Star Wars editor Paul Hirsch tackled cutting so many successful films. The thing that I learned from working with the Palmen is that tension depends on a clock. You need to have the sense that time is running out. Maybe Oscar-winning sound designer Mark Mangini's insightful chat about his work on Blade Runner 2049. Not a, not a single sound from the original Blade Runner in the new film. A great deal of inspiration. That's the Filmumentaries podcast with me, Jamie Benning. So, Troy Howarth, why John Carpenter? What brought you to write a incredibly immense tome about John Carpenter? That was actually a project I've wanted to do for a great many years. My first book was published all the way back in 2002. And once I finished that one, Carpenter was the guy that next came to mind because he's been one of my favorites for so many years by virtue of the fact that, you know, his name is above the title and all that. He was just one of the first directors I was ever really aware of, long before I knew what a director was. I suppose it was him and um, Hitchcock, I suppose, would have been the major ones that I knew who who they were from the time I was just a child. You know, at that time, I thought that would be a a good follow-up project, but the publisher at the time wasn't terribly enthusiastic about the idea, and that kind of took the wind out of my sails a little bit, and kind of put it in the back burner for a long time. Knew it was something I really, really wanted to do at some point, but wanted to give myself time to sort of plan it out and think about how I was going to approach it. And not to sound too morbid, but it's always 
a little tricky when you're writing about somebody who is still alive because <laughs> you, know, you never know. Um, I think at this point it's, it's pretty clear that although uh, Carpenter says many times in interviews, well, you never know, I might. I don't think it's really going to happen. I pretty much doubt that he's going to do it at this point. I think if he really wanted to, he would find a way to make it happen. I think he's quite content just, you know, collecting checks for having his movies remade. So I can do this now and I feel ready for it. And I don't know. I guess that's a rambling answer. Just he was somebody that I've always admired and enjoyed and wanted to pay a tribute to. And now I feel like I have a tremendous weight off of my chest, so to speak, that I've done it. When it comes to investigating and writing about somebody that is living versus somebody that has passed on, does that change the style of research that you do? Do you immediately try to go to the source since the source is still living? Well, I knew that if I was going to do something like this, it was important to, to get an interview with him if I could. I did not take it for granted that it would happen. One of the things that I don't have the advantage of is a, uh, a publisher that gives me a kind of budget to work with where if I go to somebody and say, can you give me an hour or two of your time to interview you? If they come back and say, well, how much are you going to pay me? <laughs> I can't pay you anything. You know, if I were really desperate, I might be able to pull out of my own resources. But um, I knew that I wanted to be able to talk to him as, as intimidated as I was by the idea. But fortunately, you know, Lee Gambin, uh, who's a, a friend of mine and also a writer and who works in commentaries and so forth, as I do, had written a book about Carpenter's film, Christine. And so he had some contacts that were very helpful. And uh, when I was able to get in touch with Carpenter's representation, he was agreeable to being interviewed and didn't even mention the idea of money. So that was obviously a big plus. Yeah, I mean, it was tremendously different knowing that the person's still alive. I don't see, I mean, unless the person flat out refused to speak to you, if there was some reason why you couldn't have it done, it would seem to me it'd be very difficult to not uh, make some contact with them and, and talk with them about their process and what makes them tick if you're writing about somebody who's actually still with us. That doesn't make any sense, though. I mean, as a writer, you're just rolling in money. I'm sure that you could just afford anything. I like to keep my mattress well stuffed. And if I take too much money out of it to pay for these things, then I won't sleep so good at night. How much did you learn and what things did you get corrected on as you were doing your research on Carpenter? I was, I'm very curious if you had any notions that you thought you knew what the story was, but then when you did your research, you were disabused of them. The big thing I took away from it, and one of the things I really wanted to not exactly beat people over the head with in the book, but wanted to make very clear was what a tremendous workaholic the man was for so many years. I don't think I was ever quite aware of how nonstop, literally nonstop, the man was going from project to project. Because, of course, there are gaps in his filmography where you think, well, he wasn't doing anything. You know, he was just kicking back and watching uh, March Madness and, and playing video games for a couple of years. No, he was actually busy on projects that fell through. Of course, people don't always hear about these things because, you know, obviously they fall through and it's not always terribly well publicized. So that was certainly one of the big things um, that I learned in the whole process and that I really wanted to get across. As far as changing my mind about certain things or having a different attitude and so forth, I think, you know, a lot of the fans tend to be very unkind towards the later films. I think when you delve a little bit more deeply into the making of these films and some of the behind-the-scenes things that, that went on and some of the compromises that had to be made, it becomes a little more understandable why certain films are the way they are. That's not to say that you should be in a position of making excuses for them and saying, well, you know, it's not fair to, to say such and such a film doesn't work because 
of these problems, but it, it helps to understand why certain things turned out the way that they did more than anything else. I mean, I, I, that was the big takeaway that I got through the whole process was just this tremendous workload that the man had for so many years, not just obviously directing his films, he wrote uh, quite a few of them, the films that he didn't write. It's not like he just took a script and shot it. He actually would have input into it and, and did drafts of his own, you know, rewriting things along the way, usually doing the music and being very involved in every facet of the production. That was certainly something that helps to explain the fact, I'm not to sound uncharitable, time has not been kind to him in some respects. When you see him, he, he looks older than his years. And I think Yes, it's well known. Obviously, uh, the man smoked like a chimney for many years, and that will take it out of you as well. But the workload, the nonstop workload, was something that was actually very similar to happen to Mario Bava, where Mario Bava in his last years looked much older than he was as well. That's what can happen if you really push yourself that hard and uh, don't really take good care of yourself. And so uh, those, those are certain things that I learned and certain things that I kind of got a new perspective in when I was writing and, again, tried to make clear in the book itself. Did anything surprise you that you uncovered while you were writing? I was very surprised, particularly when I got to talking to Sandy King, John's second wife. Of course, his first wife was Adrienne Barbeau, who we were not able to interview. There was It came close. It just didn't work out for a variety of reasons. Time wasn't on our side, so that didn't happen. But uh, Sandy King, of course, whom he married in 1990, I was not aware that he had a particular film uh, ready to go for a live. I mean, literally the sets were being built. They were about just a couple of weeks away from starting production. And then there was this uh, fallout between Carpenter and Universal based on the deal between the live films and uh, Carol Co. in the UK and Universal in the US. They were handling the respective distribution uh, rights for those territories. There was a falling out over that. And uh, the film was canceled very much at the last second. So that, that was certainly something that surprised me. There's a lot of projects that he sort of flirted with and was developing at different points. But that was certainly one that I personally had not read about before that they gotten that close to be becoming a reality. What was that film about? It was something to do with sort of genome mapping and uh, it's sort of a time travel science fiction type of a thriller. The script was actually written by Sandy King. So obviously she took the cancellation of the project particularly hard. You know, again, the film was all ready to go. She couldn't remember the bulk of the people that were involved in the project, but she certainly said she remembered Barnard Hughes being in the film. I'm guessing he would have played a scientist. That seems good casting. So I would have liked to have seen that happen. But that was one of those films that was during that period of time between 88 and 92, where, again, one might assume he wasn't really doing much of anything. But au contraire, he was very busy, just not able to get things on uh, on the screen in terms of a realized finished project. Are there any Carpenter archives, or are you just relying on him and what you can dig up through magazines and other sources that way? Yeah, I've been collecting a ton of materials down through the years. Magazine-wise, he's obviously been very covered very, very well down through the years in fanzines and so forth. Uh, Fangoria and numerous other publications uh, has have covered him very, very well. So down through the years, as I've come across different articles and also had other people help me as well, as far as newspaper archives, we were able to pull some really interesting things from contemporary newspaper reports from the late 70s into the 80s and so forth, things that uh, I didn't personally have access to, but I had people that were able to help me with that. So I'm sure there's quite a good bit of material, like at the Academy Library. Uh, Obviously, that would be a, a great resource. 
not being on that particular coast and not having access to, to it myself, um, I was not able to make use of that. But uh, all the articles and everything I collected down through the years that were gathering dust for a long time, I was able to sort of pull them out and finally make good use of them. It was nice to finally read a little bit more about the eyes of Laura Mars. I've always been fascinated by that project, and I had never seen that kind of he said, he said between Carpenter and Kirshner. So that was very nice to read. Carpenter is interesting because, you know, he's well known for being a very kind of cynical guy. He has a very sardonic sense of humor, and <laughs> it's the kind of thing that some people tend to think that he's kind of a jerk as a result of that. I totally get it. I understand why he is the way he is, and I relate to that. <laughs> Maybe I'm a jerk, too. I don't know. But he doesn't tend to want to talk about the bad things, especially these days. I think he's kind of become very zen as he's gotten older. There's certain things he just doesn't want to get into a lot. So fortunately, he had talked about that in greater detail when he was younger. It was obviously a project that it was very good for him in the sense that it got him a nice paycheck and a credit on a major mainstream film. But obviously, the script was completely overhauled by uh, David Goodman. You know, Kirchner, uh, of course, went on record, uh, you know, on, on numerous occasions about his insights as well. So it was kind of interesting to sort of compare and contrast their kinds of interpretations of the film. and. Basically, one side is always going to blame the other for why it didn't turn out better. You know, So I think that's natural enough. But it's an interesting film. But I, I think looking at what uh, Carpenter's idea of it was versus the film that we got, I would have really liked to have seen something that stuck closer to his original concept. Before you started work on the book, what was your favorite Carpenter? And did it change while you were doing your, your research and writing? My favorite Carpenter film has not changed these many years. <laughs> it, it has been and will likely always remain the thing, um, which is also his own personal favorite of his films. Uh, of course, that's a tragic story, as I'm sure you know. Not a well-received film when it came out at the time, but, you know, recognized quite rightly now as, as a tremendous film. I'll put it this way. There were no films that I found myself digging into and thinking, God, I don't like this as much as I thought I did. But there were a couple that I could say, you know, this has got a little bit more going for it than, than I initially thought. So that was kind of a positive thing. Yeah, you're kind of down on a few films, even from the intro. And I, I was curious if if your opinion of, say, Memoirs of an Invisible Man changed while you were reading about it. Again, I think that's something that it's helpful to understand why it is the way that it is. And that was a particularly fun movie to kind of get into because there's a ton of material as far as a very detailed evolution of that project from the time that the book came out. This big bidding war to get the rights to make it into a movie. Uh, Chevy Chase's kind of obsession with getting the film made, how Carpenter came into it and so forth. And just boiled down to the fact that these were two people who just did not see eye to eye and they both wanted to make their own film. You know, talking again, he he doesn't want to get too much into the negative stuff because it's just probably too painful for him. But when uh, I talked with Carpenter about it, I said, you know, it just feels like you wanted to make one film and Chevy Chase wanted to make something completely different. He said, yeah, that's about the size of it. So I don't dislike the film, though, completely. I don't think it's nearly as bad as a lot of people make it out to be. As a matter of fact, I remember seeing it when it came out in 92 and um I thought it was just fine then, and then revisiting it when I was you know, doing the book, I thought, yeah, it's it's not bad. I mean, it's not a great film, but it's I don't think it's a turkey. What is your least favorite, Carpenter? I kind of bounce back and forth. In some respects, I would say Ghosts of Mars, but in other respects, I'd say Village of the Damned. I think I lean more towards Village of the Damned because at least that film, I think, starts off really good. 
and then it kind of collapses. And again, there's a variety of reasons for why that happened. And it's not a particularly happy film. It was very much a contractual obligation. He really wanted to make a, uh, a remake of Creature from the Black Lagoon for Universal, but the budget was going to be too big and he refused to make it on the cheap. So uh, Village of the Damned got assigned to him after Wes Craven had been working on it for a period of time. And um, it starts off good and there's good things in it, including, I think, a very good performance from Christopher Reeve. Obviously, that was his last uh, film before his tragic accident. So I tend to lean towards that one probably is my least favorite, I guess, because it starts off so promisingly and then it kind of goes down in flames. But um you know, Ghosts of Mars, I don't really have any affection for that one either. The specter of Howard Hawks has loomed large over Carpenter's career, as, as many have said long before I got on the scene. I like it in theory. I think it could have been a lot better. I just, I think fatigue was really starting to set in by that time. And I think, crucially, the casting became fatally compromised. And uh, had things worked out a little bit better as far as the casting goes, who knows? It might have turned out better. I love reading about things that didn't get made or got made years later and in different forms. So the idea of um, El Diablo and uh, Blood River, I mean, it, I love that those just keep kind of creeping in every few chapters of the book. It's like, and El Diablo was still in this stage and Blood River was over here. That was great to be able to check in on those projects through his career. He's said it many times. He got into films to make westerns, and obviously, by the time you know he's he's part of that sort of first generation of film school brats, really. And coming to Hollywood at the time that he did, westerns were kind of on their way out. So, unfortunately, he had written with Tommy Lee Wallace's very ambitious project called El Diablo, which they kind of conceived as the Star Wars of westerns. And it was a film they were you know very excited about doing, but unfortunately, it just. Uh, Kept getting delayed for one reason or another, and then then it just it fell through. Ultimately, did get made by other people. You know, Carpenter's fairly tight-lipped about how it turned out. He he doesn't seem to dislike how it turned out, although I'm sure he watches it and wonders what might have been. He never really did have the opportunity to really make a western himself. Although obviously many of his west many of his films really are westerns in disguise. I have been reading the book for the last few weeks and. I have to tell you, I absolutely love the cover art. Can you tell me who did that? Yes, that is a very talented artist by the name of Julian Yates. Completely his own idea, 100%. I can lay no claim to it whatsoever. It was an absolutely brilliant concept, taking this rather iconic kind of image from the fog and reconfiguring it so that you have um, John as the sort of master of ceremonies in the center of the image and being surrounded by his uh, creations, including uh, Snake Plissken, of course, and uh, Michael Myers is there, Elvis. Well, not that Elvis is his creation, but you know what I mean. It made a film about Elvis and uh, one of the sort of configurations of the thing and, and uh, a gang member from Assault on Precinct 13 and so forth. One of the fun things was just sort of seeing people guess at what some of the people were because there were a couple that threw people a little bit, and then when I would say, oh, th that's Elvis, they'd say, oh, yes, of course. And, you know, they, were, they were thinking it was one of the horror images. That's one of the things I like, too, is the fact that he managed to put some things there that aren't horror-related. It feels like the Elvis film was really such a cornerstone of a lot of things, especially with that introducing him to Kurt Russell. That was uh, such an important film in his filmography. Yeah, it was a major film in many respects. I mean, it wasn't his first studio gig. That was uh, Someone's Watching Me, which was another TV film. That was the movie that kind of got him his uh, Director's Guild card. 
but it was a big project. It was a very stressful project. And again, you know, he's literally leaping from one film to another. So he's going from Halloween to Elvis, then straight into the fog and so forth. I mean, no wonder the guy got worn out. Elvis is uh, a very interesting piece of work. I think a very accomplished piece of work. And I think his only real major bone of contention with that was I, I know he really wanted to do the soundtrack for that film. And unfortunately, Dick Clark, who's the producer of the project, had other ideas. So, you know, the post-production aspect of it kind of got away from him a little bit on that one. But um, it's a really, I, I think, a really beautifully crafted and very well acted movie. And, um, you know, he even gets a, a nice comparatively understated performance out of Shelley Winters during a period when Shelley Winters tended to be turning it up to 11 and 12 most of the time. How long did it take you from the time that you got the green light till you finally turned this into the publisher? I don't know. It was probably somewhere in the range of a year, which isn't that long. Um, I work very fast. But again, for the better part of 20 years, I had been collecting all of this material. And uh, it was just a matter of finally pulling it out of the drawer and saying, OK, now, now it's time. When you set out to do something like this that's been on your mind for a long time, you do have this kind of um, feeling of obligation of doing it right, and it, it can be a little uh, intimidating. But once I started getting those first words down, it, it flowed fairly well. And, and the whole process was really very easy because Tony Strauss at WK Books you know, worked tirelessly on putting this thing together. And this is during the midst of a pandemic, and uh, you know people were having all kinds of things going on in their lives and a lot of stressors with work and so forth. And uh, Tony just did an absolutely heroic job proofing it and making sure that everything looked as good as possible and as consistent as possible, making me look good where I've made myself look bad, making sure that it uh, progressed very smoothly through the whole post-production process, you know, the layout and everything else. So it was actually, it, it moved really, really efficiently. You said that you tried to get a hold of Adrian Barbeau. I'm curious if there's anybody else that you really wanted to get but were unable to reach. There were a few. Uh, I'm not going to lie. I would have liked to have had more interviews. I'm, I'm very grateful for the three that I got. I would have liked to have had more. Adrian Barbeau was certainly one of them. Really tried hard to get Tommy Lee Wallace. I think there was some issue with his representation who um, was not the easiest person in the world to deal with. I thought I had him. Questions were submitted, but it just never came through, unfortunately. But no hard feelings towards him. It's just I think there was something up with the representation that I was dealing with, which was kind of mysterious. I would have liked to have had um, uh, Alan Howarth, no relation, but that also didn't pan out. Although, fortunately, Blake Fischera was able to give me uh, access to a really tremendous in-depth interview that he did with him uh, for one of his book projects. So I was able to sort of take the Carpenter-esque you know, material and, and put that in there for everybody to read. Very insightful stuff. And I would have liked to have had Dean Cundy, but that just didn't work out. I mean, you know, it's a question of whether people are available. And there were a lot of people we approached who just aren't interested anymore in talking about this stuff. I tried to get uh, Richard Coberts, for example. He's just kind of over it. You know, he's talked about it before and doesn't want to keep talking about it anymore. So there were attempts, but unfortunately, we weren't able to get everybody we had in mind. I know you're a very hard worker, always driven to do more and more. And I'm curious, what kind of other things are you working on these days? You have the the next book already lined up? Sick as it sounds, yeah, I've, I've already written another one. That uh, well, of course, the Argento book has, has come out as well, Murder by Design, but that was actually written before 
assault, but that was kind of a complicated story involving the publisher. There were some issues there that sort of slowed things down. So the Carpenter book was actually written after that, but it emerged first. Uh, but I've also written a, um, a smaller book. It's about uh, Alice Sweet Alice, the Alfred Soul film, um, which uh, is, has been written for Bear Manor. So that will be coming out, I would imagine, within the next couple of months. I'm also planning on doing a book on Umberto Lenzi, simply because Nobody has done one in English yet, and I feel like he is somebody that could be interesting to sort of delve into and look at the full scope of all the movies because he made a lot of movies, and you know, obviously not all of them are, are particularly good. But uh, you know, I think that that'll be a fun topic to tackle as well. And of course, I also keep very busy indeed with commentaries for various Blu-ray releases. Troy, as always, it was such a pleasure talking with you. I hope we can have you back to uh, talk a little Alice, Sweet Alice. Yeah, I'd be happy to anytime. Uh, yeah, it's that's a, uh, a film that I've been very fond of for many years. Obviously, very happy to do the book. It will include the um, the original shooting screenplay, uh, which obviously has some differences compared to the finished film, and a very uh, in depth, exhaustive new interview I got to do with Alfred Soul, amongst other goodies. So, hopefully, people will like it. sure that you and John Carpenter met when you guys were still in your teens. Is that right? Actually, we met uh, before that in grade school, but we didn't become friends really until uh, high school. John was one year older than me, so we weren't in the same grade, but we were in the same school. So we would sort of bump into each other either in school or musically from uh, an early age. We were both connected to uh, music instruction. I was taking piano lessons and he was getting violin lessons. And so we would also bump into each other at these little recitals that a group of music teachers would hold also on campus, the campus of Western Kentucky University. We grew up, each of us, on that college campus. So we knew each other and couldn't say we became friends until uh, high school, but through orchestra, we became musical friends because he brought a guitar on a uh, one of the orchestra trips. And I noticed in the back of the bus, there he was with his guitar playing and singing. And there was this gaggle of girls all around him. I thought, wait, that's cool. And so I went back there, and I developed a really good ear for harmony, so it was easy to harmonize with him on whatever song he happened to be playing and singing. And I had an interest in guitar myself and was just learning how and saving up money for my own guitar. 
So, you know, this was the early 60s when folk music was everywhere, and I guess I learned how to play guitar. I would have have to thank, among others, Joan yes, for all of those early folk songs that she was putting out there, and uh, easy chords, you know, basic guitar chords. In any event, John and I became fast friends through music. Were you as into film as he was? I'm thinking maybe not. I was an ordinary teenage film goer. You know, I had my favorites. John was fanatical about horror movies. He just loved them. And I think that he sort of built his own world around the uh, fascination with those movies, as well as other kinds of pictures. I was far more casual, just, you know, going to movies with friends, and uh, I liked all kinds of movies, and certainly science fiction and horror included. But uh, John was on an entirely different plane. He, he, by the age of maybe nine, he knew what he wanted to do. His ambition was to be a film director. Well, fell it. At age nine, I didn't even know there was such an occupation. I, I hadn't really thought about how movies got made. I was in my own world of, you know, Boy Scouts and a lot of church activities and uh, other things. So when John and I really hooked up and became friends, I entered his world, which was a world of, it was just different from mine. And it was, he was a creative dynamo. And so it really woke up a whole other part of my brain and heart and uh, turned me on to the possibilities of being a creative person. How did you decide that you wanted to get your MFA at USC? It was a fairly obvious progression. I I had uh, a lot of musical talent, but all through high school, grade school and high school, I'd been enrolled in the orchestra at our school. It was a tiny little K-12 type school on the college campus, a teacher's training type school. Uh, my father had encouraged me, you might even say pushed me, uh, to stay in the orchestra. But I had always been interested in art, and so finally, when I was a senior, I put my foot down and and took art. That they, they were offered art and music were offered at the same time during the day, so you couldn't do both in a classroom situation. So I put my foot down and took art, and it, uh, the teacher was a terrific lady who just blew my mind with the possibilities. I didn't even know what graphic design was. She showed me the way and helped me start developing a taste for graphic design, typography, two-dimensional graphics. So by the time I was through with high school, I had pretty well decided that rather than major in music, I would major in art. And uh, after a not very productive year on that same campus, you know, when you've grown up on a campus, your freshman year of college would be 13th grade, and you would never be able to... uh, just really spread your wings and fly independently. So I'm, I went off to Ohio University and got a Bachelor of Fine Arts in uh, uh, Design, which included a lot of courses uh, starting to go into film, animated film. It was a good design department, and uh, my favorite teacher there was wild about film. And so I was taking uh, film survey courses and uh, animation and really sort of preparing myself for it, because in the meantime, John was, had gone off to Southern California, USC. He was writing me letters just glowing about Los Angeles and what a thrill it was to be there, not only the film department and what he was learning, but 
the scene. You know, he'd tell me about going down Sunset Boulevard and there was the whiskey and the doors were playing inside and groups that we both adored. That was getting pretty thrilling. So I was being drawn toward the West Coast uh, while I was still in college. When I graduated, I had a big decision to make. New York for design and art or go on to the West Coast and see if I could explore the what was by then being called the art form of the century, so look into cinema the way John had. In the end, I decided to go West and enter USC. I got accepted as an animation student, but fairly quickly on, my interest turned toward uh, live-action filmmaking. I was in uh, a really vibrant uh, beginning class, uh, 8-millimeter type filmmaking class, among the other students that were in that class was Bob Zemeckis. And so we we were kind of the leaders of the class, you might say, in terms of creativity and uh, ambition. Uh, but there were plenty of others who were also really interesting. So it was a vibrant class, a fun class. By the way, just to make sure the record is straight, I did not stick around to finish my master's degree. I did five semesters in that master's program, but I did not get the degree. Tell me, how did you get involved with Dark Star, and where was the project at when you came to it? Dark Star was John and Dan O'Bannon's project. They were collaborating on this funky science fiction comedy send-up to, well, you know, movies like 2001. Very ambitious for a student film. And uh, when I entered the picture, John was just kind of it appeared that they were wrapping it up as a student film. I think it was about roughly 30 minutes long or something like that, you know. It was a color, sync, sound, five-man crew type project at USC, which a rite of passage that all of us in film production went through is uh, you sort of graduated from 8mm to 16mm, black and white, non-sync sound, and into projects in color, full 16-millimeter sync sound, five-man crew type project. And it was one of those, but it, almost at the same time, John was finishing up his college career. He, he didn't graduate either. He was in the BFA program. It appeared that on, you know, on the outside, he had connected with someone who was willing to put up money to uh, expand Dark Star into a feature film. So I'm not honestly certain that there ever was a completed print version of the student film. Somewhere in there, uh, John finished his last semester at USC and kind of took the film and ran, if you will. There, Well, there was controversy at the time about that. USC claimed it as their property, but John got away with it and made expanded it into a feature film. But he did so with the help of many friends, student friends, kind of out of the trunks of people's cars and scotch tape and chewing gum. Not a lot of money involved, but he did complete it with uh, Dan's help. And as it turned out, because I came from my art background and graphics background, I proved to be really helpful to Dan. John didn't particularly need directly need any help in the directing department or the writing department. But Dan really needed a right-hand man to turn to to build sets and to do graphic. Dan was just a, a brilliant guy, 
but not strictly speaking, not a people person. You know, he did not did not suffer fools gladly, and could be pretty acerbic and and maybe not very kind to just everyday people. Somehow, he and I hit it off where maybe others hadn't succeeded in that regard. So I became valuable to him and someone he could actually talk to and delegate responsibility to. And that's how I became useful on Dark Star, uh, the expanded version of Dark Star. Was it pretty much a natural that you would then go on to work on Assault on Precinct 13? Yeah, it evolved very naturally. John, uh, when he found the uh, backers for uh, Assault on Precinct 13, one of whom was a classmate of his, between them they put up, I believe it was, and I'm thinking it was started out being $100,000. cannot remember. John would know. He turned to his friends, first and foremost. Doug Knapp, who had been the director of photography on Dark Star, he turned to Doug. He turned to me, because by then, he and Dan had fallen out. So Dan was not going to be a participant in uh, Assault on Precinct 13. And others, I tapped my friend from USC, John Sergemacki, to be the production manager. And so it went, you know, former students. John's One of John's uh, forward-thinking uh, approaches to early days filmmaking, low-budget style, was to give his friends the opportunity to take on responsibilities that might be a, a cut above their experience level. What that meant was if if you were smart enough and hardworking enough to rise to the occasion, you got a tremendous break. And John got a great performance from someone who needed the experience, experience and the exposure, but who, uh, you know, had no track record. And so taking those chances, I, I think John had a really good track record on that. I was among those people who stepped up to the job. I mean, when he asked me to be the art director on Assault, I, you know, I just barely knew what those responsibilities were. And as a result, I, I did sort of more than actually a union would define a production designer or an art director. But uh, it all worked out. And that's really the way you succeed on a low-budget picture, is everybody has to wear several hats uh, in order to get the job done. Well, what all were you doing on that one? I'm so curious, and especially, I know you're credited for um, sound effects and how you managed to, to get into that as well. Once again, a very organic, very logical kind of progression of friends working together. My responsibilities on the uh, the shoot itself were centered around set building and making sure the central set of the movie was addressed, that being the interior of the police station, also the basement set of, at the climax of the movie, that based, just basically a long corridor. Reminiscent, come to think of it, of uh, the set I built in Dark Star for the elevator shaft. I had never thought of that until just now, but uh, similar, you know, just simple uh, place to stage some action. After a couple of hiccups, I stumbled upon a set-building company that helped me uh, execute my plan, which was drawn, as I recall, by my friend Randy Moore, who by then had come out from Ohio University himself and had special talents and training in uh, architectural drawing. So he drew up the plans based on my design, 
that was the number one responsibility, but it also encompassed preparing locations, doing props, because there wasn't, like, you know, everybody's wearing many hats, as I said. So preparing props just seemed like a natural part of the process of signage, graphics, even the costumes that everyone was wearing. My uh, then-girlfriend and eventually wife, Nancy Ben Loomis, or actually Nancy Kyes, who was then married to a guy named Loomis. She kept that name for a while. She was responsible for the costumes, but she allied. It was very natural for the two of us to ally with each other and help each other's departments. And so it was a peculiar approach to production design because I just basically, if it was on screen and visual, I took responsibility for it. And uh, the result is a fairly coherent visual effect. Uh, you know, it, it looked consistent all the way through. And John gave me pretty free hand. He, of course, always had his opinion, but he wasn't, you, you know, this was, in a way, his first official feature. Dark Star was kind of a fragmented job. But uh, Assault on Precinct 13 had a real schedule. It was shot in 35 millimeter with a limited amount of money, but he had to be super organized and, uh, really know what he was doing on a daily basis. So he didn't have all that much time to pass judgment on what I was doing as long as it looked decent. So he had a great deal of confidence in me and I'm still grateful for that opportunity. When the movie went into the can, all of a sudden I was on the outside. John went into the cutting room because he couldn't afford an editor. So he was editing his own footage which, if you know anything about filmmaking, is a really tough task to try to be objective in a different way. The old adage is that any film gets made three times, once when you write it, once when you shoot it, and once when you edit it. It's good to have different eyes on the subject. It just keeps it from becoming too self-indulgent, or that scene that you labored over at midnight that doesn't actually belong in the movie. Uh, you need somebody to say, hey, you know, I'm sure it was a tough scene to get, but it just doesn't work. That's much harder if you're doing your own stuff, if you're editing your own stuff. Anyway, there was John in the cutting room, and coming out of USC, I was accustomed to following a movie from start to finish. So I went to see him. I said, hey, man, I'm lonely. I said, Give me a job. Let me do something in the cutting room. And he said, well, do you know how to cut sound effects? And I, without much thought, said, well, of course. But I actually had had some experience back at USC as a student, but that was it. I didn't really know what I was in for. It's a really complex job when it's done well because it involves, on the one hand, uh, editing of dialogue and getting the dialogue to where you can really understand what the actors are saying. And sometimes that means replacing lines or going into the uh, outtakes for a clearer reading on a, you know, it's an intricate little process, not to mention all the actual sound effects, which you either have to borrow from other places or you have to originate. And then uh, getting the music to work, remembering that John was to be the composer. So I knew that that situation was pretty well in hand. But yeah, I jumped in. Uh, it was pretty thrilling and pretty intimidating because uh, we had a connection through USC with a, an old buddy whose name you'll recognize, Ben Burt, 
who got involved with George Lucas, of course, and made a career out of that. But at the time, he had been in the projection booth at USC showing all the movies that came through there for the edification and, and entertainment of the students. And these included westerns and genre movies, film noir, and all the rest. And every one of them, he was recording off of the, uh, generally, film uh, comes in three stripes for sound. And so he was taking the sound stripe and recording it, and therefore getting these, this wonderful library of gunshots and uh, car, you know, and all the rest. And so when we finally found Ben, he supplied us with, it was wonderful too. You'd hear a, uh, another classmate, Jim Nichols, uh, was the good connection. And uh, he would come back with this tape and it would say gunfire. And we'd play it. And there would be Ben's voice saying, Fox Ricochet. MGM Ricochet. And then you'd hear the sound effect. It was like, wow, this is just genius. It was, and it made it, it made a good soundtrack possible. Slowly but surely, we began to put together the sound effects, which on Assault on Precinct 13, as you, you know the story, so it's, it's an assault on a police station by a renegade gang, United Nations of gang members, who, for reasons explained in the story, want to kill everybody in this police station. It was loosely borrowed, I think, from some of John's favorite Westerns, including Rio Bravo, Howard Hawks' picture. But what made it interesting was that, uh, well, for the most part, it was fairly straightforward, dialogue sequences and, you know, just ordinary sound effects. But the firearms and the gunshots needed personalities. And moreover, there were silencers on some of the guns and impact sounds that we had to originate. We simply couldn't find. So we could afford a Nagra, which was the industry standard tape recorder at the time. So we originated a tremendous amount of those sound effects, including the hits. When a bullet would hit someone's torso, it needed a really grisly sound, which would stand out above the, the sounds, the silencer that came just before. I remember in the end, we used a pair of great big tailor scissors snipping shut that had the great, somehow the, the, the sound we needed for that, which is the case throughout sound effects history is unlikely sounds that you wouldn't expect to be generated by this particular sound when applied to a different situation just to make it right and bring it to life in a colorful way. The other part of the challenge was that your listeners will probably know what uh, a Foley session is. That's where you go in and you, uh, you're performing, in effect, all the sound effects to the picture because generally those effects aren't usable from the production track, which is, of course, focused mostly on dialogue. A typical movie will come in and fully sound effect, put sound effects in that are generated right there in the room. Well, we couldn't afford a uh, Foley session, so what we had to do was take a good look at the scene, map it out according to timing. Okay, there are 14 footsteps in this scene, and uh, the first one occurs at about three seconds into the into the scene, and then there about every half second there's a footstep. We would go outside, just wild record that sequence, and then come inside and 
fit the footsteps editorially. It was wild and uh, had had to do the same thing. We couldn't afford looping. That is, you typically you call the actors back in because, oh dear, we, we need you to redo this line, either because they said, you said fuck, and now it turns out we can't have that in there, so you better say hell, you know, or something. Those kinds of considerations, not to mention uh, the sound was bad on this take, so would you please redo your lines here? Couldn't afford any of that, so it had to be pulled out of the box, that is to say it. Had to be pulled out from alternate takes, or even in one or two cases, I just imitated the actor's voice for a word and recorded it right there in the editing room. So all of those considerations, I remember working a day or two on the, you recall the little girl scene when the little girl gets shot and the uh, ice cream man says, it's late, sweetheart, I'm closed. And in fact, what the actor said was, it's eight o'clock, sweetheart, I'm closed. And it's like, oh shit, we got to redo that because we realized that, or at least John was bothered by the fact that saying it was eight o'clock didn't make any sense because it was broad daylight. So we all knew it couldn't be mistaken for eight in the morning. So that meant it was stupid. So I, I finally came up with the solution of changing his finding an L sound out of his dialogue. It's eight o'clock. I probably took it from a reading of a clock somewhere an L sound and then taking away the 8 o'clock and just keeping the part that said 8 and putting an L on the front of it to make it... It's, and you can hear it. If you listen carefully, it's, it's a little funky. You know, it doesn't quite... You know, you can hear the edit if you're listening for it. But to an ordinary listener, the first time, it just says, it's late, sweetheart, I'm close. Those are the kinds of things that we came up with. And you know, Mike, it's a funny thing about the final result. That means we had meticulously done soundtracks that were very simple in the end. There wasn't that much to it. Typically, a movie that has a full-time sound effect editor doing what he or she will do is going to go into uh, a mixing situation with a billion tracks, just so many tracks you can't believe. And choices for the director or whoever's running the uh, mix. Oh, you don't like that gunshot? Here's a different one. You want this one instead? You know, all these kinds of uh, bells and whistles that are typical. Well, we didn't have that. All those decisions were made in the cutting room because John was right across the room cutting on picture. And so I would be able to audition something for him. And then the decision's made. It's done. We don't have to have a bunch of choices, nor could we afford to. By the time we went into the mixing stage, it was a very tight little sound, you know, where typically you might have 16 or 18 or 24 tracks of sound effects. For us, it would be two or three. And they would be very clean and very simple and well laid out. Bill Varney, who mixed the movie for us and later, I don't know how many Academy Awards he eventually won, but he was a terrific mixer. He complimented us. It was a different kind of mix for him. It was touch and go a lot of the way because we had so few tracks, we were just naked some of the time. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, we had to come up with various ways to make sure our, uh, our the thinness of our work didn't show. But those are solutions that 
you just, those are things you do in the mixing stage. Maybe you have to add a little bit of traffic noise or something, so, but whatever. Uh, he brilliantly guided us through it and later complimented us and said, this is a great approach to filmmaking because you kept it so simple. You can spend your time instead of what uh, mixers often have to do is just spend days and days and days pre-mixing to get the tracks down to a manageable size. And we didn't have to go through any of that. It it, uh, kept it very simple. And so in his opinion, you know, it came out pretty elegant because it just simply wasn't that complicated after all was said and done. As to the uh, editing of picture, John had a big job just putting the movie together as the editor. And he was struggling with the action sequences. I just think he was getting a little burned out by the time he was getting to those sequences. And at some point, he just said, you know, you want to take a crack at this scene? And so the shoot 'em up scenes, there are two or three of them in the movie. He handed those off to me. And I guess I did a good job because he liked them and uh, they went in the movie. And I think that fact gave him confidence when it came to Halloween and the fog that I could handle the editing. Where did the idea come from of using that heartbeat as Frank Doubleday is dying? I absolutely love that. I, you know, I don't even remember that. I can't remember the scene where he died. What did it look like? It looked like it was shot night for night, and it's the the father of the Kim Richards character outside, and I think they're both in singles, so you can just cut back and forth. I don't think they're ever in a in a two shot. And yeah, he's um Frank's got the uh machine gun or or sorry, rifle, and the father shoots him a couple times and then he falls back, collapses, and you hear that heartbeat slowing oh. down. It's just <laughs> great, great stuff. Wow, I'd completely forgotten about that scene. That would be uh the team of uh in the cutting room. John Carpenter, editor, me, sound effects, Jim Nichols helping me do sound effects, and Joe Wu, Jr. finally came in as a support unit to uh, file trims and do all the other things. So that was it was among us, yeah. The other part that I absolutely love, and you were talking about the importance of those silencer sounds and the bullet impacts, there's a, a moment when the station is getting shot up and there's a piece of paper that's like flying around and the paper is getting shot. It's just, it's so great. I love that like dance of destruction that's going on. We had fun shooting up that set. Obviously it had to be a set uh, because of all the, all the destruction we were going to, all the havoc we were going to wreak on it. And uh, we had a couple, I mean, we were using, working with a lot of explosives and firearms and squibs and all the rest. And one, near disaster with the shotgun in the, uh, what was his name, James Jeter, the uh, captain or whatever he was. He exits the movie pretty early. Chill wind or whatever it was he said. I can't remember. It's devil's wind or something. Anyway, that shotgun that he was playing with went off. It was very close to Deborah Hill. And I don't know if most people know this, but when you're shooting blanks, you're still shooting a wad of stuff. It's not likely to kill anybody, but it can really hurt somebody if they catch it point blank. So that was a near miss. And uh, just a reminder for us, it's like, oh, shit, this is real stuff. You know, we have to watch out. That was a blast to uh, create that set. It was really a, a 
a stunning set. I learned so much about set building and set painting from uh, the guys who finally took the job on uh, on my behalf, a place called Get Set, and uh, aging it down and just learning all the steps that were filling in knowledge that I just didn't have. So it was great to have their help on just exactly how to how to do it and how to do it right. But then, of course, you load it up and uh, blow the place up, fill it full of squibs and blow up all those phone books and, and uh, all the rest. It was, it was great fun. It's kind of hard to imagine that that police station is a set because it looks so good and it looks so aged. It looks like a lot of stuff has gone down in that place. Yeah. Thank you. It, I was just knocked out, and I know John was knocked out, too. You know, he used it well shot it extensively. We needed so much. I mean, just to keep it from being set bound, we we needed it to to perform for us, to have plenty of variety and in a way become a character in the movie. I remember fighting over like the arches that it has a sense of character because it had to pretend to be the interior of the old Venice police station, which is nothing but character, that old building, which is still there, by the way on Venice Boulevard, I think, down in Venice, uh, California. But it it needed to match that. And there was a lot of fighting in between Get Set and myself because they needed, they were trying to, we got lucky because they were between jobs. So they basically took our job to keep uh, their doors open. They weren't making any money to speak of on the uh, deal. I think, I think we had something like Seven thousand five hundred dollars to give them to do a job that should have cost you know fifteen or twenty thousand or more. They took the job just to keep their people on, but they were having trying to cut corners wherever they could. And I remember the arches were a big deal for them. It was like it's going to cost the carpenter quite a bit more time to put the arches in. And I just stood firm. I said, this place has to look real. It has to look like an old building where. Back perhaps in the days of the WPA or the 30s or whenever it might have been built, they really put a lot of care into it. We have to reflect that. And it paid off. But I think Dickie Girard was the uh, paint foreman, and uh, he had such a good touch, not just with color, but with aging. His aging on that was so thoroughly convincing. It, It really was fine. What else do you remember from the shoot? It must have been a little touch and go with this being such a, a big job for relatively inexperienced folks. One thing that comes to mind was that uh, we shot several scenes down in uh, Watts. You don't really see it in the uh, footage. It's not like we captured the essence of the place. But it was a, a little dicey, a little dangerous, kind of a bleak part of town. Most of us were just middle-class, suburbanite-type kids, and this was a new experience to uh, be out in the uh, out in the open. But everybody was real nice. You know, the local people came out, were curious, and uh, we never did run into any great trouble. But I got to say, the thrill of being on a, a real full-length feature film with Panavision equipment, uh, one of John's great tricks, was how do you make a really super low-budget movie look like a million dollars? And he used up an enormous amount of the budget to get Panavision equipment, MGM labs for uh, the development of the film, and uh, 
Samuel Goldwyn Studios for uh, post-production, for mixing, uh, and all the sound that we needed. That is to say, the, the, the sound facilities were just the one flight of steps down from where our cutting room was, so we could go down there and get whatever we needed for a relatively low cost. Please transfer this uh, song by uh, whoever uh, that we're going to put in for temporary radio music or whatever it was. In other words, John insisted on the best in the three most critical technical categories, even though the movie was peanuts, was crackers and peanut butter budget. As a result, that's what we had for lunch, crackers and peanut butter. But uh, the movie, the first time we looked at it was in a crummy apartment on Beechwood Drive the producer was living in, and he put a bed sheet up on the wall so that we could project the daily. And Panavision, my God, anamorphic Panavision, when it came up on the wall, it looked like a real movie. It looked like a million dollars. It was just a thrill. I couldn't believe my eyes that this was good vision from John. He really, really had a great idea of how to pull this off. And he did. One other thing, I remember uh, there's a driving sequence in which the Kim Richards character and her father are driving along, and uh, I, it was just an incidental scene, as I recall. Nothing special happened in it. They're just kind of a shoe leather scene where uh, they're getting from point A to point B or something like that. And uh, because we're a low-budget movie, typically the way you handle a scene like that, if you're going to be out in real traffic, is you put your hero car on a low-slung trailer and you haul it around with a camera truck, a special truck designed to do that, that typically is rigged out with all sorts of things the camera can mount on and blah, 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 you know, just the elaborate thing. Well, we did. We had no such budget, so we had the hero car, and we had a camera that was clamped onto the hood with basically just a great big rubber stopper, and the actor is driving the real he's actually having to drive while he acts. That sounds like nothing, but in fact that's hard. It's hard to do. If you're trying to act, you don't need to be driving around in traffic. So uh, the inevitable happened. They're driving along I still remember the take. Driving along and he hits another car. Fortunately he didn't hurt anybody and it wasn't enough of an impact that you know, it stops the car or anything like that. But it was just another one of those danger signs that like, oh, shit, we almost had a disaster. Yet another one of those. The hazards of low-budget movie making. We got luck all along the way. What did working on that do for you? Metaphorically, it opened up a million doors because it just blew my mind and turned me on in a big way and, and illustrated the possibilities out ahead. Literally, I don't think it literally led to me getting some other gig. It was kind of like, okay, out there in the world, I'm, although I just finished editing a feature film and doing sound effects on a feature film, who's going to hire me to do either of those jobs? Because once they look into it, they realize that, hey, this was just little rascals making a movie. You guys did, don't know. You guys don't know what you're doing. So I think I was getting gigs more like being the art director on commercials for uh, Alpha, Alpha Beta grocery store, so stuff like that, you know, just 
piecework. But I was starting to write and uh, think about, uh, by then, I had uh, done my own student film, you know, thesis film, and I had that to uh, show around and wasn't really getting any big leg up. But mostly it gave me confidence. It said, okay, I see how you do this. I see this is possible. There's no small amount of, well, hell, if John can do it, I can do it too. There was that. But John was exceptionally driven far more than me. And so he was like a house on fire moving forward from there. And even he was feeling discouraged when the assault went out. And in the U.S., it didn't do much. It wasn't until it went to England that it got a lot of attention. And uh, I'm not sure quite the sequence of events that then led to Halloween. May have been coincidental. Uh, I'm not sure, but I know that it took time, even for John, to get a gig out of assault. And so for the rest of us coming off of that, there was a tremendous morale boost, but not literally a lot of like, oh God, can we get you for our picture? It wasn't quite like that. Which came first for you? Was it Halloween three or Amityville two? Amityville, the possession came first. I had dropped out of Halloween 2, reluctantly, but I just wasn't the right choice for that uh, script. I, I couldn't, in good conscience, go out there and shoot that script. John and Deborah had graciously invited me to be the director, and I was thrilled. But when they turned the script in, I, I just hated it. I, it felt like the anti-Halloween. It was a, it, you know, a lot of time had gone by between Halloween and Halloween 2. And in that in that time, a lot of imitators had sprung up, like uh, Friday the 13th, and there was a kind of arms race of violence that took place. So by the time Halloween 2 came along, I think John had his ear to the ground. He was very aware of that arms race, and I think he felt like if he went out and did a proper sort of a sequel that uh, honored the uh, the way Halloween had presented itself, that we might get killed at the box office, that people might just go, oh, oh, hum. Instead, he made a, a very astute commercial choice to enter the arms race and to make it, you know, hypodermic needles into eyeballs, stuff like that. For me, I thought we had, actually all of us thought we had nailed it to the wall on Halloween, that it was in some ways the perfect horror movie. Therefore, I remember when the talk of Halloween 2 first started, all of us were of like mind saying, why? Why would, what's there to say? We did it. But that train was leaving the station with or without John and Deborah. And so I think they kind of reluctantly signed on. And as a result, John's choice was, I had the idea before the script got written, I was kind of lobbying for a uh, five years later kind of sequel. The sort of movie that actually H2O was that movie. Laurie is now on a college campus kind of thing. And she's been traumatized and blah, blah, blah. That was what I was stumping for. But John decided to go with a five minutes later sequel. And that meant primarily just one-upping the violent gags where the shape is just rampaging around in a hospital killing people. I, I couldn't stand the script. And I knew that if I just shut up and directed the movie, it would probably be a good career move. It would make a lot of money. 
And if I could just keep my mouth shut, I could ride ride the train. But I also felt like that would be screwing John and Deborah over because they deserved a director who was really gung-ho about the script and who really wanted, you know, sincerely wanted to make a good job out of it. And my heart just wasn't in it. I uh, very reluctantly said no, went off and started getting gigs as a writer, including for Dino De Laurentiis. I got hired to do Amityville. And I think I got hired because I was the one who was pushing the idea of, of a prequel because there was actually a uh, an actual murder that happened in that Amityville house before the events that made up the Amityville horror. There was a family that was massacred by a brother, Donald DeFeo, in the house. And I thought, wow, damn, let's let's do that story and got hired to do that. So I had finished working on that. Dino liked me. Dino Villarentis liked me. And so he asked me to uh, adapt a novel called The Fifth Horseman for his company. I was in New York just starting to work on that project when Deborah called me about Halloween 3, which was really gratifying because Hollywood, when you say no to somebody, which I did on Halloween 2, generally they don't call you back. So it's a measure of good friends. John and I went way back, and Deborah and I, by then, of course, had become friends and fellow travelers in a couple of movies. It was very gratifying, and when they said, it's not going to follow the Halloween story, it's going to be something new and different, what about it? I just jumped and said, oh, God, yes, please. So grateful about it. I always considered that one of the ballsiest moves that they could have made, just to break with that, those first two films. I just, I absolutely love it. Well, thank you. There was just one thing missing from the formula, and that was <laughs> that the people in charge, that being, uh, although they they had a, like a shell company to protect them from union laws and stuff like that, it was Universal, and Universal failed to advertise it properly. They needed to set the table for the audience and say, this year, something completely different. It might turn into a franchise of its own. We're going to tell the story, another story. Each year, we're going to come out with a new idea about season. You know, it needed to be a pretty elaborate ad campaign to get everybody ready. I don't think they liked the movie very much, frankly, especially when I refused to change the ending. So they just hung it out there. And I remember the the advertising for it. <laughs> it was, you know, it was a nice looking ad, the graphics and the illustration and everything. But the only clue they gave the audience that it was going to be something completely different was way up in the corner, the little teeny banner that said, all new. Well, what the fuck does that mean? And as a result, you had a backlash like crazy, an audience going into to see Jamie in the shape and the big knife. And it's like, wait a minute, where, well, what's this? It has taken all these years for it to actually redeem itself and find it's got a really wonderful fan base, but it took a long time. It was a bitter, bitter pill to swallow when it went out there and was perceived at least as a failure. How was it working with Dan O'Hurley? Oh, he was he was a dream. Uh, he was just beginning to get a little, a uh, few cobwebs here and there. He had big, long dialogue pieces to do. And he would go up once in a while and, uh, you know, no harm there. Just do another take. 
But casting Dan was Deborah's idea, and it was just brilliant. I mean, I I wouldn't have thought of Dan O'Hurley, but he was terrific, completely professional, old school, show up, do your lines, be on time, don't make waves, just cooperate as best you can. I, I respect any actor who says, look, I have an issue with this. I don't think my character would say this or something like that. Okay, fine. Let's talk that through. Dan didn't even, he wasn't even... Uh, like that, he just got out there and did the part. Went home. Uh, he's a delightful man. So easy to work with. I have to tell you, I really like your work on the reboot of Twilight Zone. One of my side gigs, uh, podcasting-wise, I do a podcast about uh, that series, and we actually named it after one of the episodes you directed, Dreams for Sale. Well, good. Thank you. Those were good times. I, I felt like I didn't really want to do TV very badly because that was still an era when the crossover into TV was, it was sort of the curse that you might not get to keep doing feature film work because you'd sullied yourself with television. I resisted. But the Twilight Zone, you know, that was a special shape. I thought, shit, this is really good stuff. Let's go. And uh, then after that, Max Headroom came along, equally innovative and completely out there. So I started imagining myself as uh, someone who, yes, I'll do TV if it's really special and it's event TV, blah, blah, blah. It turned out to be the place I could get a good paycheck because after, let's see, uh, Halloween 3, then Aloha Summer, then Fright Night Part 2. And at that point, none of those movies had made any box office to speak of. And so I wasn't getting called to do feature films anymore. So it became a necessity to do TV. But I'm glad you liked Twilight, though. How did you get involved with uh, Fright Night 2? That is definitely one of my favorite sequels. Thank you. As so often happens in uh, the movie and television business, it's a friend, a connection through a friend. Miguel Tejada Flores, a writer, was working. He had a gig at the time for uh, Vista Pictures which was headed by Herb Jaffe, who had been the producer on the original Fright Night. When he set up Vista Pictures, he brought the rights to the sequel rights to Fright Night with him. He'd hired a bunch of young people, young, enthusiastic people who wouldn't break the bank, but, you know, were were up-and-comers. And And, uh, they were just making one film after another. Fairly low budget, but smart, you know. Miguel was a neighbor, or or he had been a neighbor of mine. We were friends. And so he called me in on a, a script called Trap Door that he was working up and he needed some help on. And so I don't think that ever got made, but it caused uh, me to have a friendship with him and with his company and some of the people in that company. So I guess when they decided to go with Fright Night, when my name came up, I was a familiar face at that point. And as so often happens, it's it winds up being who you know. I know better than to believe what I read on the internet, but is there any truth to you having worked on a film called Helliversity? Helliversity was the title of a film, still hasn't been made. It is now entitled The Gate. And in a way, you could say it's, it's a... Uh, primarily black cast set at a primarily black university in the South. 
And it's, in effect, it's the reanimation of a corrupt Jim Crow era sheriff who comes back and re-inhabits, or, or you could say possesses, the body of a young, white, innocent campus cop. And it's Thanksgiving weekend, and there are a few stragglers who don't go home for Thanksgiving. The campus is a walled uh, sort of fortress, which one of my favorite themes is any place that you can turn into a security area and lock people out can also become a prison where people get locked in. That's the general thrust of it. And that got set up two or three different times and just died at the starting line each time. It didn't quite get made. There was even a version of it that was, we were going to go to India. We found financing in India to make it. But it's still, it's still a good, solid uh, horror movie, fun horror movie. In some ways, I think there's a passing resemblance to Halloween. You could almost say it was the Black Halloween. But so far, never got made. I don't imagine that much is going on these days because of COVID, but I am curious, what have you been able to work on, if anything? One of my favorite couple of projects, uh, I've, I've written a novella called One Christmas Eve, which is uh, basically it's a buddy story about an old man and a young man, an old street rat and a young guy, aimless guy who's really cynical and his marriage is busted up. And it's uh, Christmas Eve and he's wandering home. And uh, if you recall, it's a wonderful life. This start has a similar beginning. He sees this, uh, this old man out ice skating on a pond in a city park and the guy goes through the ice and he rescues him and that's the beginning of the story and it's a story of an endless Christmas Eve that goes on forever and it turns out the old man is a kind of Santa Claus figure. I'm really fond of that and I think it has it has a shot. I I have been stubborn about I, I know that several people wanted me to go ahead and sell it to them for a movie but I've been stubborn about wanting it to be released, to be published first as a novella, because I wrote this one in prose, and I really like it. Two more that I've been focused on, all of these, I think, I feel very confident that they might get made, is a TV show called Midnight Motel, which becomes ever more relevant as ever more fires and mudslides and floods and, you know, God, atomic disasters and all the rest. It's L.A. after the apocalypse, basically, only you still can recognize the city and it's still trying to function as a city. So this is the goings on in a little motel on the uh, perched up in the Kawanga Pass where there's still a semblance of a group of people who are trying to hang on to normal life. But, of course, life's anything but normal. That's a TV show, TV series, a very bent and out of whack funky and strange TV show. And uh, last but not least, one called Scary Land, which is about a, a group of high school seniors who decide to put on a haunted house for a fundraiser. But the house they pick is uh, unusual, to say the least. It sounds like you've definitely gotten the horror bug over the years. I couldn't help it. I caught it from John, I guess. The fact of the matter is that my interests were far beyond that. I I remember back when, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with El Diablo, but after, I think we were working on The Fog at the time, but John got the call. 
to do a Western, and uh, it fell to me to, to do the bulk of the writing. And so I just glommed onto that and adored it. So I'm definitely up for other types of movies, but uh, horror was what kept the phone ringing, you might say. And I, it turned out I had a knack for it. So I was the last one to know, but uh, there you are. Mr. Wallace, thank you so much. You've been so generous with your time. This has been fantastic talking with you. Well, you're welcome, Mike. It's been a pleasure. You asked good questions. supposed to be a routine prisoner transport. Williams was arrested on the suspicion of murdering six rail workers. The bodies were hung and decapitated. But here, a million miles from home. Hello? Anybody here? Drop your weapon. I ain't going back. They're about to discover nothing is what it seems. We've got a situation there. Everybody in the mart's gone inside. What the hell is going on out there? Whatever used to live here, we woke it up. It takes us. I'm talking about a kind of possession. Something's kicking out there. We need us, and we need you. None of us is going to survive if we don't stick together. Come on. Time to stay alive. Second time I saved your life. Yeah, run a town. From the master of terror. Go, get out! John Carpenter's Ghosts of Mars. Damn, girl. I like you already. All right, we are back, and we are talking about Assault on Precinct 13 and all of its remakes and inspirations, let's call them. So the first remake of Assault on Precinct 13 was done by none other than John Carpenter himself, where he kind of played with that ancient evil thing of the thing and then mixed it with... Assault on Precinct 13 and put it on Mars. And now we have the ghosts of Mars because there are ghosts on Mars. Don't turn on that, that thing, Quaid, because you never know what will happen on Mars. So much going on on Mars that I would rather be doing than spending it with these characters in this retread of one of my favorite movies. I would rather be smoking or inhaling or snorting that Mars dust or the drug she's taken, whatever. I would just, I want, I want something to forget it. That's what I want. It's not a movie I like at all. One of the few times I went to a movie in the movie theater, having seen all of the guy's previous work and, uh, you know, consistently when it was released and thought, you might want to hang it up now, man. When was uh, Village of the Damned? That was 95. And yes, I certainly had those uh, inklings and with uh, In the Mouth of Madness and basically the 90s. 
but it was John Carpenter, so I was like, oh, maybe the next one. The next one will be good. And then by the time we got to Ghost of Mars, I went, stop. Just stop. There were some interesting ideas, this idea that Mars, for whatever reason, is matriarchal, so you got all these strong women characters, but I have to say they're all pretty much blown away by Jason Statham and Ice Cube. They're way more memorable to me than Natasha Henstridge and Clea Duvall. Both of those are basically actresses in the Where Are They Now file, which is unfortunate, because I liked a lot of Clay Duvall stuff. I really liked her in Carnival. I liked her in But I'm a Cheerleader. But it's like, hey, what are you up to lately? I haven't seen you in forever. She's directing now. She's direct. She just directed Happiest Season. And um, good for her. Ooh. That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. She was on a couple of seasons of that show, Veep, as well. Is Natasha Henstridge in like Species Seven or something? I mean, I'd watch it if she was a direct-to-video. Uh, sequel to Sicario called like Night of Sicario. I, I just I just saw it on IMDb. So that's the I think that's her latest offering. I don't even think that's connected. I think they just stole the title. I think honestly. you're right. I think you're right. Probably. That the main bad guy, if you put a gun to my head, I could not tell you his name. The guy that just goes Mars guy. I think his credit might be Big Daddy Mars. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. <laughs> Big Daddy Mars. M- Marilyn Marson. Huh? <laughs> yeah, there you go. I'm trademarking that. Welcome to Hot Topic on Mars. I did like Ice Cube. I thought Desolation is a little strong of a name, but you do what you got to do. Uh, but I, I did I did like having Ice Cube in this. This was a good Ice Cube role. I think this was one of the first action roles of Statham, and this is back when he still had hair. I can't remember if this was before the Guy Ritchie movies or after, but before, okay. I think. And, you know, seeing like Wanda De Jesus and Peter Jason was nice. It was very strange seeing, and we'll talk about this more next week when we talk about Escape from LA. What is up with Robert Carradine just showing up for like five minutes in these movies? That is so strange to me. Yeah, that's it. It is a bit jarring every time he shows up, particularly in Escape from L.A. But you know, I think Carpenter had done the the pilot for a show he was he had created called Body Bags on Showtime, and the one good segment in that uh, features Robert Carradine. So uh, evidently, they just must have gotten on well. But it's weird that he wouldn't just cast him in larger roles because I think it would help the movies. Yeah, because when I see him in in Ghosts of Mars, I'm just like, wait a second, is that Robert Carradine? Is he going to come back later? Because he's just driving the train. Why isn't he like one of these main commando guys or part of Desolation Williams's gang or something? You just answered your own question, I think, by saying that out loud. Why isn't he one of the badasses? It's Robert Carradine. Well, but he's Robert Carradine. And he deserves more. Badasses come in all shapes and sizes. You know what I did find very funny about this movie is I was watching it. And I was paying very close attention because it is one of the first times I remember seeing Jason Statham. He actually wasn't that good at doing the action in this. And and now that's what he's known for. But he was kind of clumsy. I think in his performance and action in this movie. Yeah, I agree. It's my understanding that he was supposed to be cast as Desolation Williams, right? Like, that's the story. He had ba- basically gotten the role and then the studio said, well, Ice Cube is a draw right now. Put him in it and we'll, you know, give you this much more money or whatever. So they he got shifted to the sort of sidekick. Yeah, it I, would have been a better movie. Would it? It then starts to play into what we'll talk about when we talk about the remake. It starts to shift into this racial politics stuff of 
Ice Cube being an African American and being in prison, you know, being a bad guy. And it's like, that's what I liked about the original Assault on Precinct 13 is that the white guy was in jail and it was the black guy who was the cop. And it's like, okay, yeah, you got Pam Greer as the commander, but I want to say she dies pretty early on in this movie. She does. You know, the whole matriarchy thing, like, I like that as sort of a concept, but it felt kind of flippant in what you had already described, Mike, which is, yeah, they're in charge, but they're really ineffectual in this movie. So it seems to be almost thumbing its nose at the at the notion of a matriarchy, whereas it could have just been an interesting backstory plot point to the thing. Well, the entire screenplay is so clunky, I think, in that movie. It just – and it's – I love Carpenter. I really, really do. But the screenplay is so back and forth and sideways and left and right. It's just like – it's so hard to focus on what is going on and not in a clever way. It just feels like in a very disjointed way. Flashbacks within flashbacks within flashbacks. The structure is a mess. And we end up caring about nobody at all. When I rewatched this yesterday, the whole flashback structure, I thought that they just kind of set it up at the beginning and then brought it back at the end. I forgot how many times they interrupt the action to take us back into that courtroom and be like, but wait a second, you said, and it's like, holy shit, what are we doing, guys? Just take me to the story. Let the story play out. I don't need the judge asking Natasha Henstridge all this stuff. And the judge, I I thought she was an okay actress, but I kept thinking that she was Joanna Cassidy. And I was like, wait a second, how is Joanna Cassidy, both the judge and in the flashbacks? Uh. <laughs> but I was glad to see Joanna. Ca- I always like when Joanna Cassidy shows up and stuff, and she was pretty good as a badass in this. But yeah, to your point, it did feel like, yeah, the women can say that they're in charge, but really it's more like the guys like Desolation Williams are in charge. Yeah, she effectively becomes his sidekick by the end of the movie. Well, she doesn't have the presence. You know, that's. I like Natasha Henstridge. I did like the first species film i think it's hilarious especially forrest whitaker as the psychic who can't predict anything other than like going into a hotel room that's smashed up and saying she's very angry and it's like uh what was your first clue yes she has limited appeal natasha henstridge does nope no presence at all really like every time she's talking it's just like you're just saying these words and (laughs) you know there's no, there's nothing behind it. Well, Clea Duvall would have been a much more effective protagonist. I think that she's a badass, and I would have been like, okay, cool, absolutely, get her and Ice Cube, have them back to back, or throwing shotguns from one to another, or something, or maybe using laser guns if we're in the future and on Mars. I don't know, but yeah, it was it was rough. In the future, society will finally find a way to protect itself from those whom it fears the most. A wall will be built between us and them, and they will be locked down in District 13. But the district just went nuclear. So if you want something out of District 13, someone has to go in. From the mind of Luke Besson and the producers of The Transporter. This July, 
if you're going in, make sure you can get out. Welcome to the district. Welcome to hell. I put this in the mix, even though I think it starts off as a remake of Assault on Precinct 13, but then quickly becomes, I think, a precursor to Escape from L.A. I can't remember when Escape from L.A. comes. It comes out after. It comes out after, after. but but B-13, also known as, pardon my French, Banlieue 13, also known as District B-13, possibly. It was remade as Brick Mansions. Do not watch Brick Mansions. It is garbage. But I've watched B-13 several times. I've even seen the sequel a couple times, but I have to say the sequel, you can skip the sequel, but I really like B-13 a lot, which is strange because it just takes the parkour slash free running phenomenon and says, let's make an action movie about this. But I thought that they did it so well. And I really liked the two main leads that are in the film. And I liked the villains a lot. And I like this whole idea of that. We're going to send up a, a, there's a district within Paris that is, it's basically like, Manhattan and Escape from New York. It's just all the bad elements are in this district. So we're going to send a weapon into this district. Oops, it was stolen, quote unquote, but really we want it there so that it'll wipe out all of the people in this area and then the city can reclaim it and, you know, basically make condos and shit like that and sell it to the rich people. I like that idea and I like the way that they execute it. I don't know what you guys felt about this movie though. This is the first time I had seen it, and, you know, it made me realize one thing about every time they show parkour in a movie, which is, you know, it seems obviously the, the path of least resistance and they, you know, speeds up their, their, their chase and they're, you know, running and getting away, but they never actually get away. Every time, <laughs> you know, he does some amazing uh, uh, somersaults, like downstairs, like, you know, jumping over railings and stuff. And by the time he gets there, there's the, there's the bad guy. I'm like, just run down the stairs. Cause apparently, apparently that ain't working, man. It's beautiful. No doubt. That, I, I agree with you. I like the two leads, particularly the cop. Like, that's real screen presence, that guy. I like K2, the sort of, you know, the, the kind of comic relief villain. And, uh, you know, the, the main villain as well. Like, I think it was really well cast. It just didn't, I don't know. It just felt like a retread of all of my favorite movies with the secret ingredient being parkour here. My favorite moment in the movie is when, uh, the, the casino fight, before the casino fight happens, when they're in the sort of counting room and the cops have dropped that thing down so they can haul the guy out. They send down the, the cord, but before he can get to it, they burst into the room. He lays waste to them and then doesn't just go up on the metal rope that they sent down to get him. He goes through and has to decimate everyone, which I know it's a great sequence, but I was just like, why didn't you just climb up the rope? <laughs> There'd be no gunplay. I had never seen this before. I had never seen this movie before. And, you know, I know Luke Besson loves to pay homage to John Carpenter's work. Wink, wink. Wink, wink. Yeah. Sometimes you get sued for that, I hear. Uh, but this was one that I'd never, I'd never even heard of. And I did not know Pierre Morel directed it, who did Taken. And as soon as the movie starts, I'm like, I get it. 
you know, I, I already, I already can see the style. I can already see the sense of style, the sensibilities. And I had fun from start to finish. And is the plot smart? No, but I do like that it's, it's actually having a conversation about governments, rich people versus poor people. I love that in a film if they can do it well. And I love parkour. I think no film ever does parkour well. I mean, I guess Prince of Persia, if you want to call that a film, but outside <laughs> of that, it's a film. <laughs> I don't think so either. This is really fun. Like the whole time I'm watching, I'm like, God, I wish I could do that. I know I would break every bone on my body, but I wish I could do that. It just, it's fun. I think that movie's fun. I do like that every time they really get into the parkour, it's like, cue the one music track <laughs> that they have. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> you cannot do parkour without that music. I agree with you, Father Malone, as far as like, this guy just ran like halfway across this district and there are the bad guys like waiting for him when he gets downstairs. It's like, how does that happen? But to your point, Aaron, I love how beautiful it looks, just the balletic qualities of it when he's going down the stairs and just like flipping from one rail to the other. And the one guy like tries to face off against them and he falls down the stairs. I, I thought that was a great fall. It was very, very painful. I really did like that casino fight that we we're talking about. Just there's a really a lot of good action sequences to this. I think the only other time I've seen parkour done as well uh, was the beginning of Casino Royale, the um, Absolutely. remake, yep. which to me, and I know that this is really um, heretical to say, I think that's the only Daniel Craig James Bond movie that I like a lot. The others, I think, can just take those and throw them in the garbage. Sorry. Um, you are a terrorist. I am. I'm a horrible, horrible human being. But I really like that. Well, I'm right there with you on that. Casino Royale is great, and I can't, I can't take any of the others. I am not with you at all. The sequel to B-13, which is like Ultimatum, I think I told you guys over the weekend, it's like, if you haven't watched it yet, just skip it. Because I have seen it a couple times, and it's like instantly forgettable kind of thing. Like I remember the beginning of it very well. I remember like when we catch back up with Leto, the dark haired guy. And when we catch back up with the, the cop who is undercover as a uh, Thai masseuse and saving a um, priceless painting, like those opening things are pretty good. But then once you get into the story, it's like, yeah, no, we needed to go someplace else other than the district. They needed to go out a little bit more. But definitely, I would say, if you can track down District 13 and not see the dubbed version, by the way, uh, I started watching the sequel and it was dubbed. And I was just like, nope, nope, let me find the real version. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you don't have to read much of it anyway, because most of it's action. So you're not reading a whole lot. Anybody work around here anymore? It was the night Precinct 13 was supposed to close its doors forever. No offense, officer, but we'll close it down. We're short staffed. Central said we park here overnight until the roads clean. Until Detroit's most lethal prisoners changed everything. I'm responsible for everybody in here. That's my job. I assume you know who I am, Sergeant. You're a gangster. That's accurate. He's a cop killer. Who the hell are you? Who the 
They're surrounding the place. The phones aren't working. I found this out there. Why are cops coming to kill us? One of my partners in crime is your fellow officer, Marcus Duval. If I make it to court, his whole team goes to jail. They can't allow me to leave this precinct alive. They can't allow any of us to leave here alive. This winter... Who's the weapon? Anything you see. The only thing more dangerous than the criminals on the inside. Come on, baby. What, are you going to trust these freaks? They need us as much as we need them. Are the cops. On the outside. When this is over, you're going back to jail. This ain't about me and you. Not yet. we got to put them all down. Without pause. Without regard. Producer of Training Day, Ethan Hawke, Lawrence Fishburne, John Leguizamo, Ja Rule, Andrea DiMatteo. We all gotta start trusting each other right now if we're gonna make it through this night. Assault on Precinct 13. I had never seen the proper Assault on Precinct 13 remake until this weekend, even though, and I didn't know until I started watching it, even though it is set in Detroit. And I usually try to watch movies that are set in Detroit just to see how wrong they get things. Um, they definitely got the snow right. <laughs> yeah, the snow when right. the snow comes like this, and it has come like this, it will shut the city down, which is weird that it's a snowfall that is taking things out other than like the sick prisoner that it's the snow that drives them to the precinct. Thank goodness. They timed this uh, capture of Bishop to a, a huge snowstorm. I was thankful. The snow is my favorite part of the movie. Is it? It was the only thing that was working. Oh, I like Everything else was awful. I do like this movie. It's like one of those where I just take my brain, throw it down the street and I enjoy it. <laughs> I liked some of the character actors that were in there. I liked seeing Brian Dennehy. I liked seeing Kim Coates. I was tolerant of Gabriel Byrne. I really like Larry Fishburne a lot, especially when he can be a badass, but at the same time that they race flipped these guys and made the black guy the person in jail and the white guy the, the cop. I was like, okay, that kind of undoes everything from the big, from the first movie. But it could have been awesome if Larry Fishburne had played a better character. This script was muddle-headed from, from the get-go. Like, I, you know, I get we're updating it. Like, I like that it was in Detroit. I liked it that they were bound in by snow. All of the characters. It makes me appreciate how economical the, the first screenplay is. Like, you know, now we have to have these types. Like, oh, my God, John Leguizamo is this sort of motormouth heroin addict. And what's her, uh, what's her name from uh, Dre de Mateo? That character is worthless. Like, like we, we were talking about the first film and the sort of sexual chemistry between those two characters. And the scene in here, as we mentioned before, it's, it's so clumsy and just dumb. Like, it's bad. They're in the yeah. middle of the siege and like, what, what is she going to take him in another room? Like, what, the, like just logically, it makes no sense. I don't know. I, 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 can't, I don't know. I do not like this movie. <laughs> 
as soon as Jerry Bruckheimer and Don Simpson began making movies, like we have to start with an opening scene that's sort of like the end of whatever previous mission to set up the character's redemption, like halfway through the movie. And it's just so dumb. And I don't care about Ethan Hawke and his, and, and his team getting killed. I don't know. Sorry. <laughs> you guys have differing opinions, maybe, but uh, ah. I enjoy the movie for what it is, except I, I have real issues with Ethan Hawke's character and, and everything he does with the therapist, I think is, well, especially now, I mean, it's painfully outdated. And I think it was outdated in 2005 when this came out. I really like Lawrence Fishburne in this movie. So maybe I'm in the minority. I don't know. But I thought he was kind of badass. I did agree, Jade DiMatteo, what they did with her character. I don't blame her at all. Uh, I just think it was written poorly for her. But I do think she had a little bit more fun at the end in terms of her character. But I, I overall enjoyed it. Like, I just, it's one of those movies where I took a lot of the stuff and just said, ah, you know what? I'm just going to watch the movie. It's not trying to be the original. That's for sure. And it, it's just basically trying to make a, a 2005 version, probably a Bruckheimer version of what that movie would be. But for what it was, I enjoyed it mostly. Especially once the action starts. I think that if they had given this movie a different name, I probably would have liked it better. But that it was trying to be a remake, but then not necessarily being a remake at the same time. Maybe it was a reboot, if you will. A reimagining. I was just like, yeah, no, it's not working for me as this new version of this thing that I love. I know that this is going to sound horrible, but I'm going to say it anyway. Having two attractive blonde women in the film, I kept mixing them up. So I'm like, wait, is that Maria Bello? Is that Dre Mateo? Who, who, because also it's very dark in the police station after a while. And I'm just like, okay, I just see kind of like blonde hair and a female shape. Who am I looking at right now? So it was tough. One's in fishnet stockings. Yeah. Oh yeah. One's that, definitely that in you. fishnet stockings. And I guess she's like a sex fiend or something. That's my biggest problem with the movie and my only real problem with the story, but it's a huge problem with the story, is that the women characters are very poorly written. They're like they're written, obviously, by a dude who's horny or something, but it's it's just poorly written. They're poor, poorly realized. They're solid actresses that just didn't get an opportunity to do anything. And then you get that really ridiculous aspect where Ethan Hawke is like, you want to fuck me, don't you? And his therapist like what? Who t- what are you talking about? Why this guy s- does not even seem like that guy from the moment she leaves the precinct the first time. He doesn't seem like that guy ever again, which makes no sense. I'd say I like the writer's previous film, The Negotiator, a lot more. And apparently there are some like references to The Negotiator inside of this Assault on Precinct 13 remake. But I, I haven't seen The Negotiator since 1998, so... I love that movie, but I can't think of what the connections would yeah, be. Yeah, I guess some like character names or place names or something. It's probably very tenuous. Um, but then he would go on to be like the guy for the Purge. Yeah. yeah he's Mr. Purge. Mr. Purge. Thank you very much. Mike, as, as a, a Detroit native or resident, can you get right to a forest at any point? Can you step out back of a tenement slum and suddenly be uh, encased in a uh, beautifully shot snowy winter wonderland somewhere in Germany? (laughs) I'm trying to think because there are a lot of overgrown lots. You know, there's a lot of urban blight downtown. (laughs) Forest parks. Yeah. Areas. I can 
think of a couple places with some trees, but as far as like being in Bavaria right outside your back door, not necessarily. <laughs> they go out into the into that forest, and I thought, why didn't they just do that to begin with? They like just run through a forest. They have such a chance to get away. Well, they had to go through a sewer first. That's how you find the forest. See, it's like you have to go through the sewer to get to the forest. That's the trick. It was better than other things like True Romance where they're like, I'll meet you at 131st and 8th Street. And I'm like, yeah, streets don't work like that in Detroit, guys. So they're a little (laughs) bit like there are moments when Ethan Hawke is driving at the beginning where I'm just like, okay, that looks like the Rouge Bridge. I think I know where around which area this is set in. Steve Perry would probably say that it's South Detroit, uh, but that's actually not a place because if you go south from Detroit, you actually end up in Windsor. But yeah, no, it's not. It's not as Detroit accurate as I would think it should be. That's a shame because a forest seems a natural place to escape to. It does. They must have got a great tax credit to shoot it. <laughs> that's true. It was probably during that time. While I was looking at the trivia on assault on Precinct 13, the remake, uh, which is where I found out about the connection to The Negotiator. I also saw that another film was based upon this remake of Assault on Precinct 13. So it'd be a remake of a remake. I went and I tracked it down, uh, a Indian film called Kaithi, K-A-I-T-H-I. And I don't know if you watched that one, Father Malone, but I made it about 20 minutes through, and then I was just like, yeah, I'm not I'm not getting this one. Well, you got further than me, so congratulations on that. Yeah, um, not going to do it. <laughs> the American remake was enough. So does that mean it's, it's actually – they're saying it has nothing to do with Carpenter's film, even though it's painfully obvious that it has something to do with Carpenter's film? Kathy? 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 Yeah. Yeah. I didn't make it far enough to see if there was going to be anything to do with Carpenter's film in it. Yeah, I saw some stuff happening at a police station, but I never made it far enough for there to be a siege on the police station. Also, I think it took me like forever to find a version with subtitles that matched up to the dialogue. I ended up giving up on that one. So if anybody can make it through Kaithi and tells us different, Cool. That's good. If it's a great film and I just need to give him more time, cool. But, uh, yeah, there weren't, wasn't even any like singing and dancing in the first part that I watched. So there was like a song on the radio. <laughs> wow. Yeah. It was bad. <laughs> well, I think all these films we can agree are nowhere near as good as the original Assault on Precinct 13, which is pretty fantastic for a movie that's 50 years old almost. Yeah. The movie from 76 just kicks ass over all of these other ones. And I will watch that in a heartbeat, but these other ones, yeah, I'll watch B 13 again, but nah, not the remake, not ghost of Mars. I think hopefully I will not have to ever watch ghost of Mars again. I know I won't. Would you guys think another remake could be made of assault on precinct 13, a more faithful one in today's environment where you could actually buy the precinct and getting an assault like that where there's no communication going out. I mean, cause it's so impossible to make that happen in 2021. You know what I mean? There's so many forms of communication now. I think it could be done as long as the, the, the ways that the communications are broken are plausible as opposed to just, 
a bunch of people in the station like, my cell phone isn't working. They must be using a jammer. Like, come on. At the early scene in any modern movie now where they show you that the protagonist's phone is, like, nearly dead, like, we're going to take that away, so. But, yeah, I think, you know, I think another remake of this movie could be very worthy, you know? Setting it somewhere completely different. Like, Carpenter failed setting it in space, but that was a natural thing. How about a Western? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Straight straight up. I don't see why not. The way that the gang operates, they are very much the Native Americans that you see in a lot of different Westerns. This whole idea of them being this silent, deadly thing. I mean, them using silencers is as draws as much attention as if they were using arrows. I can't even express how how smart that was, I thought, even rewatching it, and especially when the idiot realizes that he's been shooting for like twenty minutes and he, he had no bullets. Yes. <laughs> so good. <laughs> Still my favorite moment. Classic. All right, guys, let's go ahead and take another break, and we're going to play a preview for next week's show. In 1997, one man will have more power than a president, more loyalty than a king. He's the Duke, the Duke of New York. What did I teach you? You are the Duke of New York. You're a number one. Isaac Hayes is the Duke of a New York City that's a wall maximum security prison in John Carpenter's Escape from New York. That's right. We are back next week with a look at John Carpenter's Escape from New York. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Aaron and Father Malone. Father Malone, what has been keeping you busy, sir? I I do a podcast called Dark Destinations, uh, which is kind of a radio drama that I do monthly. Uh, That's eaten up most of my time. I write and produce that thing. Uh, You can find it at fathermalone.com, which actually has links to a lot of different things. Uh, including uh, the other podcast that you and I do, Mike, Dreams for Sale, the Twilight Zone 85 podcast. And Aaron, how about yourself? Well, I have a weekly podcast on film and television called The Hollywood Outsider. We review movies. We talk about movies. We talk about TV. A lot of things that happen there. You can find that at thehollywoodoutsider.com or, of course, on your favorite podcast app. And also, I've been doing a monthly podcast on every Alfred Hitchcock movie called Presenting Hitchcock. And we're going, we do them in a random order. We just pick every month and see what we get, including the silent films, which is a totally different world for me. I'm not a big silent film fan. You can find that also at the Hollywood Outsider, but it's called Presenting Hitchcock in your podcast app. That sounds very cool. What are you doing next? Do you know? Uh, 39 Steps, I think, is the next one. Oh, very cool. Still haven't done Rear Window, which is my favorite one of all time, but we'll get there. They showed Rear Window when I was at band camp in eighth grade maybe ninth grade and it was amazing to see like all these 15 16 up to 18 year olds sitting around completely enwrapped in rear window like none of them had ever seen it before and everybody was just laser focused on that tv he was able to play even that group so many years later just play us like a heart uh, like a violin it was amazing that is amazing. I remember watching that with my kids and, you know, it's hard to keep kids focused on. They didn't pay attention to many Hitchcock movies, but that one came on and I think they all understood why I loved it in every way. Seeing that on the big screen, seeing that little cigarette butt light up. Oh, oh the window. yes. Mm. So good. <laughs> Uh, well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
Got a smoke? The world don't owe me no favors, but it gives me pain and misery. I'm just a natural loser. We were a bunch of heroes. You can't fight it. You better believe it, people. You can't fight it. You better believe it. You can't fight it. You can't be a sister. You can't fight it. You got to believe it. You can't fight it. You better believe it, baby. You can't fight it. You can't be a sister.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.